Oh, first thing I need is I need you to get up and hug your neighbor while I pray. Can you do that for me? I'm an addict on Bill. Who got less than a year clean in this room, first of all? Could you please put your hands up? Don't be bashful. You mean another Yaki You don't understand English? Well, learn, because that's all I speak. I don't speak any other language. I could, I could speak street, okay? But I'm not going to do that, because that might confuse you a little bit more if I speak, if I speak uh, street. But uh, I'm, I, I, why, I. What I want to talk about, what I'm going to talk about, are going to be two different things. First of all, I want to see where you're at. And my message needs to be tailored to those with less than a year. Because you need hope. What I learned hope was when I walked through the doors of Narcotics Anonymous. The first embracement, which you just embrace one another. That's why I have that done. So you're hugging one another. You're caring for one another. You come here is for care. You come here because you didn't have a life worthwhile living. You won't get here for any other reason. I think about that type of stuff. Or we, will, we didn't have a life worthwhile living, or we wouldn't have made it here. My life was not worthwhile living. And I made a commitment to this fellowship right from the start. I didn't deviate from that program to today. I've been working the same program since I come to Narcotics Anonymous. November the 16th of 1979 is my clean date. All right, I'm only here because God intervened in my life. I had no ability to want to get clean. So if you're here and you didn't want to get clean, you're in the right place. Okay, why? Because November the 8th is actually when I stopped using. It was November the 16th I made a commitment to staying clean. So from the 8th to the 16th, I didn't make that commitment. I just wanted the pain to stop. November the 8th, God intervened in my life. God made a decision for me. I chose to die. Anyone get to that point where they don't want to live no more? Hmm? You can shake your heads. You don't have to yell it out to the sky. But if you understand, I understand where you're at. My life was worthless. There was no reason to continue this thing. I made a decision. I made a decision how to die. I prepared myself for my death, and God intervened. And that was November the 8th at 2 o'clock in the morning of 1979 when God chose me. I chose death. I chose mass murder over staying clean. I chose to die in a, in a gun battle with killing hundreds of people dying in the streets of Allentown, Pennsylvania, fighting it out with the police. That was my death. And I planned it. I, I, I cleaned my weapons. I made a decision. 
and I got a phone call at 2 in the morning. Anyone ever hear me share, they, they hear about that. They may hear a little different version because I go through all the whole planning of suicide, which I'm not going to go through today, tonight. It's today at home yet. It's in the middle of the day. Not even the middle. Of, yeah, it's around noon, right? A little, uh, 1 o'clock or something. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't have to go through that whole planning of it. But I got that phone call at 2 in the morning, and someone challenged me. They said they read my name in the paper, and I'm thinking that's deja vu. What the hell are you talking about, Ann? That's tomorrow morning. I'll have the front page. It was three months earlier. I was picked up with assault and battery with attempt to murder on a police officer. And uh, she read my name in the paper then, and she said God told her to call, and he woke her up every night and said, call him. Tonight was different. He told me to call because you'll be dead by morning. And she called, and she asked for five minutes of my time. She said, you, and she asked me a question. You're not afraid to die. You're afraid to live. And she was right. Death was the greatest option for me. I could not take the pain of living any longer. I had to learn how to live. I had to learn. I was just talking with a friend of mine about the message of Jimmy Kennan. And if you're here long enough, you're going to hear the word Jimmy Kennan. He's one of our founding members. He's the one that kept us together for years. Jimmy Kennan is one of our greatest writers. He writes in poetry. Anyone read chapter 8 here, the beginning of it? That's Jimmy Kennan's personal story. He writes about the end of the road. There's other pieces he's wrote. There's, there's, you can watch him. I was just talking about it today. Uh, that you can watch Jimmy on um, on uh, links. Well, links or uh, you got this new terminology. With, you don't call them CDs no more. You don't call them tapes no more. You just hit a link on the on your computer and you can listen to it. And uh, so. Uh, Jimmy Kinnon, every time you hear him talk, every time you hear him sitting down with a group like this in a room, he's teaching you about recovery. Jimmy Kinnon emphasized recovery. And that's what this is about. It's about recovery. It's about anything else, about changing our whole life. We're no longer that person that we were before we walked through the door. We changed all that. We... I mean, I was just talking about some things where Jimmy shares about being productive members of society. It doesn't say productive members of the N.A. society. It says productive members of society. He also talks about not being millstones around society's neck no more. We've been there too long. Either society won't accept it and we no longer will accept that of ourselves. There's key words that Jimmy talks about. And I listen to this because I study him today. I want to learn about recovery. I want to learn how to experience this stuff. I want to learn how to participate. Holy, when Jimmy shares, in, and they change it in the book, he tells about the holy recovered addict. It's in the old literature. The holy recovered addict. He didn't say a partially recovered. He said a holy recovered addict. He talks about language. I know there's some disruptions going on about this part about medication in the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous. 
He never talked about that. He talked about total absence from many mood changes, something on our chemical. That's all the basic text talks about it. People don't know it. They read it. There's only one part it touches on, medication. And it talks about extreme physical pain, talking about being in the hospital, educating your doctor, because they're not the addict. They're not the addict. It's talking about talking with your sponsor, your prayer. It's talking about a protocol when you leave the hospital, okay, to detox there before you leave even. All right? It talks about them things in the basic text. And uh, we're going through a whole lot of growing pains in Narcotics Anonymous today. I'm not fighting for the right to use anymore. I did that when I was using. I, fight, I fought for the right to use. I no longer fight for that right. I fight for the right to stay clean, totally absent of any mood change, some moment chemical. I've not done anything since November the 8th of 1979, my clean date is November the 16th, the, May, the day I made a decision to be part of this great fellowship and be part of the total abstinence from any mood change except my own chemical and the part of wanting to recover from this disease. Where does the disease lie? It's the part that tells you you're worthless. It's the part that tells you you don't fit in. There's no one that, can, that knows what I feel. How many of you think that way at times? There's no one that knows how I feel. I'm pretty sure every one of you has gone through that. Nobody knows me. Nobody knows me. How do they know how I grew up as a child? How do you know about a, if you weren't abused, physically abused every day of your freaking life as a child and raped as a child? How do you understand me? That's my childhood. I get tired of hearing people in the program say, you don't know what it's like to be raped. Well, I'm telling you, I know what it is like to be raped because I was raped as a child. I know what it is to wake up in the middle of the night with a shotgun going off in my bedroom or a rifle and my dad shooting at my mom and my sisters. I know that pain of growing up in a household of addiction and being hopeless right from a child. I know I was not given the opportunity as a child. I know I was not given the tools to be able to go out in society and be a productive member of society when I grew up. Because I was always different. I was always ashamed. I didn't want to talk about it when I went to school. I wanted to put a mask on. I didn't want you to know how I lived. I never talked when I was a child. I never talked. I didn't learn how to talk until I made it to Narcotics Anonymous. I knew how to physically be enraged as a child. I knew how to fight. I knew how to hurt other individuals. Because of my own pain, I knew how to inflict pain on others before I got here. You think about these reasons. We all end up here from different walks of lives, every one of us. I don't know your walk of life, no, but I know your pain. I know your feelings. I know the first you lose in addiction is your feelings. You become disruptive. You become where well, you don't want to talk. You, 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 or you're either going to be flamboyant, you're going to be controlling, you're going to be manipulated. You're going to try to fit in. Everyone tries to fit in, right? 
And those that don't, they go into the wall. That's why I know if you're trying to go in the wall, I know who you are because I've been there. I tried to go into the wall, it didn't work. That's what took me to my last night. I was a physically violent human being. Death was, an option, was the greatest option for me. I could no longer live in jail cells. I went in and out of jail cells for many of years. I never wanted to go to a mental institution. I viewed that as the ultimate prison. I never wanted to be there. So they locked me up in cages instead of like an animal. I know other people take the mental institution road. I didn't choose that path because I was afraid that they were going to try to manipulate and calm my brain. How it says, you're going you're gonna, to uh, brainwash me? Well, I'll tell you what, I needed my wash, I needed my brain whitewashed when I got here. I needed totally cleansed of every thought I ever had, every reaction to any feeling I ever had, I needed it cleansed. So I made it to Narcotics Anonymous in 1979, and I become totally obsessed with Narcotics Anonymous. Can you switch, switch obsessions? Can it be good obsessions? Well, yeah, it was good for me because I indoctrinated myself into this fellowship. You know, I become part of something greater than us. And it was writing of the basic text. That was the movement. That's the movement that kept me clean. I'd hit six meetings from Friday to Sunday every week. I'd hit daily meetings every day. And I did that for eight, five years where I didn't miss one meeting. Did not miss a meeting. I missed one on my fifth, after my fifth year. I ran back for five more years. I know how to absorb myself in this lifestyle. I've always absorbed myself in even my addiction. I slowly committed myself to drug use. I slowly committed myself to that way of life. Using and finding ways to get means every day. I did that my whole life. I don't know what it was like to be clean. I can't remember what it was like to be clean because I was using since I was five years old. I don't know what it is like to live outside of addiction. So when I walked in here, I had to learn how to live outside of addiction. I had to learn how to live in recovery. And I was a real lucky man because one of my first phone calls was to Jimmy Kinnon. It was in the little white book, his, the World Service Office number, and it was Jimmy Kinnon's household. He picked up the phone and talked with me. And he encouraged me. This is about encouraging one another. You want what we have to offer? What are you willing to do to get there? Are you going to say, oh, I want to, I'm tired of this thing. I want to go fishing with a friend. I want to bring old people back into my lifestyle. I hear a lot of that stuff. I hear, I'm bored with recovery. If you're bored with recovery, get more involved. I mean, I just was down in Kensington. Anyone ever watch what's going on in Kensington? Why don't you Google uh, Allegheny and Kensington Avenue and see what's going on down there. Where I just was down there. There's hundreds upon hundreds of addicts on the street just shooting dope. They're the living dead. It looks like the night of the living dead. I was just down there. You know, I walked down the street, I wanted to know what the problem was. These people are get are shooting dope and no one's doing a thing about it. And I looked but I looked at the business windows. How many business windows did you think would put a PI poster in if we asked them? Hmm? The business would, but N.A. isn't doing it down there. They're not putting, if you have a drug problem, 
Like you guys are running around this country putting these big posters up and putting, uh, you know, uh, stickers up. You're doing so much in public information, getting the message out. If you have a drug problem, we're here. We can help. There was not one sign on, on, on Kensington Avenue. There was not one sign on Allegheny Avenue. And when you look at the video and you see it, it will disgust your mind. It looks like the Night of the Living Dead, just like the, the, the show. People just dead. I mean, they're dead. And they're shooting dope. And they got, you know, they had the, the ambulance service there. You know what they're doing? They got a card table there. They're playing cards, waiting for someone to OD to take the body to the hospital. That's what they're doing, or take them to the morgue. They're not there to help them. They're there to pick up the dead bodies. The police don't come into the neighborhood. The police stay away from it. Because if they did, they'd have to clean it up. They'd have to stop the addict, the dealers. They'd have to bust the dealers. They'd have to clean the neighborhood up so they don't show up. And, I, and I'm thinking, what I'm thinking about, how are we going to get a message to these people? I'm thinking about how many of these books can I afford to get and put a sticker like this on the back? See that sticker? Put it on the back and go hand it out to each, each person using it. And tell them, you got a drug problem, we can help. Put the web page on it. Put a phone number that they can call. And if i got to put my own on, call me. We can help. That's what I think about, about recovery. What can I do to help? What can I do to carry this message of hope, promise, and freedom from active addiction? I am in, living in gratitude. Because God has blessed me in 1979, brought me here. I owe my life to helping others. I learned that here. I learned when we were writing this basic text, when we were writing it, okay, the great book, which is the first book, that that was the Memphis Miracle, we call it. <coughs> you think about the Memphis Miracle, the great book. Anyone read it here? I know there's some of you read the great book, right? Some of you study it, don't you? You study it? How long are you here? Uh, six months. And you haven't got to a great book meeting yet? You know where they're at? I think I don't understand it. I miss. Is it in here? This book? Oh, yes. It's yes. in your language. Yes. Right? Yeah. They translated it, okay? And they're working on the translation days where you can get the translation days and go through it and study it and help with it. All right? You think about that. That gray book speaks to you. It speaks to me while we were writing it. When I got my hands on that great book, it's the book is, is my mainstay. That book is my mainstay. This is a, it's a great little book, but it's, 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 that book speaks to my heart. It speaks to my heart because it's our language. I know we wrote it because I was there. I participated in the writing. And I know the people who gave up everything to write that book. I know the guy, when they say stories about they sold blood, that was done in Lincoln, Nebraska, Second World Lick Conference. That was someone who sponsored me later. It was Jim Nichols who's passed, okay? He got his biker friends in the program and they went and sold their blood so they could get stamps, envelopes, and send the information from the conference out to every known group of Narcotics Anonymous that they're gonna be going to Memphis 
please get involved in writing of the book. And my sponsor put a flyer out from Memphis, and it said on it, you are the book. You are the book. Memphis, Tennessee, the 1981 writing of the basic text, you are the book. And that was the flyer for that, that World Lit Conference that lasted for 10 days at an actual conference and another week afterwards to get it put together and get it out to every known group of Narcotics Anonymous. At that point, there were 600 meetings in the world. 600 meetings. Think about that. 600 meetings. When we come out with the basic text, the approval form, a year later, okay, not even a year, because we had, right after Memphis, we had the Fort Wood Conference in Santa Monica, then we had the 5th in, in Ohio, then we had the 6th in, um, in, in um, Miami, Labor Day weekend of 1981. We come out with the approval form. That's not the storybook. We have a storybook also we came out with in 1982. That was the 7th World Lake Conference. And that's where we, we, we basically, through that in Memphis again, we come out with what Jim Miller called the, thir the 13 original IPs, pamphlets, okay, that we wrote. We wrote them. Not all of them got approved. Uh, there's some I think should have got approved, but they didn't get approved. One didn't get approved because a physician wrote it. And he wrote about total abstinence. He wrote about, about a physician's viewpoint. It's in the gray book, physician's viewpoint in the back of it. And he wrote about a physician's viewpoint of Narcotics Anonymous and our recovery program. And he wrote about total abstinence for many mood changes and chemical. We had a lot of good people working with us back then. And they wrote this gray book and it came out of Memphis, and that book came to all of us, and it was 600 meetings. By the time we put the approval form out, we grew from 600 to 1,800 meetings in the world. Fastest growth ever. Fastest growth ever, percentage-wise. I'm not saying numbers of meetings, but the fastest growth ever, percentage-wise, hasn't happened since, in that percentage-wise. We grew a lot in meetings, but have we grown a lot in recovery? Think about the recovery end. I don't fit into society today. I am productive member of society, but I don't fit in. I don't identify with society. I identify with addicts in recovery. My life is dependent on addicts in recovery. My life is coming over here twice a year now. I, I changed it to twice. Last year it was once when I was here. All right, now it's twice a year. I come over in the spring now in May for the sponsorship step retreat. You know, but uh, come here for eight days, like 16 days, a half a month a year I'm here now. And uh, it's all about recovery. Everything I do is about recovery. My wife knows everything I do is about recovery. It's my way of life. It's our way of life, as Jimmy said. We learn to practice the principles. What are the principles here? I know there's people that know them. You know what they are? I know you're only here six months, but you know what the principles are? Uh, no. 
Read the 12 steps, read the 12 traditions. Them are the principles we're talking about. Yeah, but I don't know them. Uh, You're going to learn them. Yeah. Okay? I have a belief. You're going to learn them, and you're going to want to learn them. Who's going to the EFC here? Hmm? And if you're not, why not? <laughs> Seriously. Everybody in this room should be at the EFC this weekend. No reason not to be. I'm here because of the EFC. I was here when we first started it, okay? And we met, the first, first time we met, it was an explosion. They tried to burn the facility down, I think, with a big bonfire. They had a, a bonfire going uh, 40 feet in the air, throwing mattresses and everything on it. Luckily, they wouldn't burn the facility down. But no one really, I mean, over, over half the people didn't want to be clean that were there. They wanted to go party. And they were trying to drag recovering people to go party with them. And they were upset with the message. They felt they were sabotaged. Well, no, they weren't sabotaged. They were just introduced to a new way of life. That's all. Our way of life. The way I was introduced to this program, they were introduced to. But it's grown ever since. This is a growing process. Everything we do here is a growing process. This is a growing process of recovery. Learning how to let go of self. I need to let go of myself. I just shared with someone about it. If I'm fighting, if I'm fighting in the program, okay, and I'm talking about fighting in the program to get you to believe what I believe in, I'm barking up the wrong tree. You don't have to believe in a word I say. You can believe I'm the biggest liar in the world, for all I care, because I don't have to take you home to my bedroom, and I'm not going to. All right, when I go to lay in bed, I lay my head on my pillow, okay, every night. And the only person in my bedroom is my wife. That's it. And she don't have to accept me, even. If I'm fighting for her to accept me, I don't have a relationship with her, do I? If I'm trying to control every aspect of her life, I don't have a relationship with her. If I gotta be concerned while I'm over here, where's she at? I don't have a relationship with her, and it's not built on trust. See, that's the difference. My relationship is built on trust. Was I that way all my whole life? Not early in recovery, when after I met her, I didn't trust any woman. Why? Because of my patterns of my past life. Most men end up marrying their mother, and I don't mean literally their mother, but they marry their mother. Most men end up with their mother. Most women end up with their father. Why? Because we're indoctrinated right from the start on how a woman should be and how a man should be. And what we're seeking is, as a man, I'm seeking what my mother accepted as being a woman. And then I wonder why I got these here bad relationships my whole life. My mother didn't have the ability to be a giver, an encourager. She didn't have the ability to love me as I wanted to be loved. So I end up with women that way my whole life. And wonder why. I have to go back through my past. I got to do inventory. I got to be looking at how each relationship ever affected me in my life. 
I got to write about these things. I got to look at my first step. The first step is more. It's more than being powerless. When it says, it doesn't say powerless over drugs. How come so many people think it means powerless over drugs? Drugs got you here. It's not what keeps me here. I'm powerless over disease of addiction. We're powerless over the disease of addiction. And it left our lives unmanageable. We're in an unmanageable state. What triggers all that stuff, though? We don't end up just picking drugs up. You ever hear someone say, oh, I relapsed and I picked up a drug? I just happened. It don't happen that way. First, you got to have recovery to relapse. Did you know that? If you didn't have recovery, how can you say you relapsed? You just went back to using it. you got to have had recovery to relapse. And then it's a process. First, you're going to lose your emotional self. Then you're going to lose your spiritual self. Then you're going to lose your mental self. And then you end up back in your act of using again, and that's when the drugs take your body over again, the obsession and compulsion. But it doesn't happen by osmosis that a drug just popped in your body, did it? I don't know if anyone ever had a 20-foot-long 20, uh, a, a 20 joint chasing down the street. Seriously, you ever have that happen to you? Anyone ever shoot dope here? Anyone ever put a needle in their arm? Good. If you didn't, but I've never seen a needle chasing someone down the street and forcing itself in them, did they? So they're either injecting or someone's injecting for them. There are people that will not inject for themselves because they're afraid to inject, but other people do it for them, like I started shooting. I didn't shoot dope, I shot another chemical. I don't talk about the chemicals I use, but I never had that needle chase me. I never had that doobie chase me. I never had a bottle of booze chase me. And knocked me over and portioned itself in me, did I? Huh? Ever happened to any of you here? Okay, so you're not powerless over drugs. No, it's drugs that get us here. It's tip of the iceberg. Okay? Your lives are unmanageable. You use drugs to bury something. You might have started off you're having fun, right? A lot of us think we're having fun originally. You know what it's doing? It's escaping. It makes us, we can get a... We can hang out with people and we can justify and rationalize all sorts of nonsense that it says in the book. We end up doing things that we never thought we'd do before. I'm going to tell you what I did in my addiction. I prey on young girls. Why? Because they were easy. We prostituted ourselves in addiction, didn't we? We all prostitute. We're all prostitutes, every one of us, okay? Every one of us prostituted our ideals. We prostituted to have sex. Whether we gave money or not, we did drugs together, didn't we? All right? We sought drugs for it, didn't we? All right? To feel good for a second, a fleeting second. But it's not lasting. We never got to know one another. How many women ended up in marriages that they never would have ended up in? Hmm? How many guys ended up in marriages that they never would have been in otherwise? Except what brought them together? Negative energy. Drugs. Their lives were centered in it. And they end up rationalizing, justifying their behavior together then. And their lives don't get better. Our lives don't get better. We're like 
that old song about being fleet and sh we're, we're, we're ships passing each other by in the middle of the night, right? <coughs> Never getting to know you. Never getting to know what makes you feel or tick or what you really want in life because as an addict, I didn't take time to get to know you. I was only controlled by my, every aspect of my disease. That's what I was controlled by. And my needs, my wants, my desires, heck to yours, you were to be used by me. That's what, what happened for real, folks. So when I got here, I had to learn to leave all that go, every bit of it. When I got here, I want to, I want to take this brain out, give it to you, and say, you operate, you could probably do a better job than me. So I found a sponsor who I could give my brain to, and I could call daily, and he'd give me direction, and I'd just go do it. I used to carry a little white book, which we don't have no more, a little white called the Hip Pocket Recovery, put in my back pocket. I'd, I'd take some uh, little tablets with me to work, and I'd write every day. I'd write. Whatever came into my mind, I wrote about. Someone said, I don't have nothing to write about. I don't believe your mind is that empty, first of all. I believe every one of us think, every one of us feel. Write it down. Get, get, a, get in a good pattern of writing. Go over it with your sponsor. Get a sponsor. Find a home group where you fit in. And I'm not going to tell you as a brand newcomer, just join a home group. I'm going to tell you, go check some home groups out. Find where you fit, and the home group will emerge for you. I'm going to tell you the sponsor will emerge. Let the home groups sponsor you till you're able to get a sponsor. I don't force people to get sponsors. First thing, I won't, I won't give a person yes or no when they ask me to sponsor them. I'll give them some direction. And if they can't do that direction, guess what? Will never be sponsor, sponsee, ever. I give them four questions. Anyone know the questions I give them? Huh? I know there's some people know the questions. Ramon, what questions did I give you? <laughs> it wasn't questions, it was demands. Huh? <laughs> they were questions, Ramon. <laughs> Huh? Gold Daily. Yeah, well, it's one of them. But what about the writing? The, uh, what, do what do you expect from sponsorship? What do you expect from a Narcotics Anonymous? Uh, what does surrender mean to you? How do you apply it in your life? Okay, these are key questions, folks. And I will not say I'm going to sponsor you. You're going to make that decision after we go through this, and I'm going to tell you my expectations. You'll make that decision if I'm your sponsor or not. Because we're not going to get in a bad relationship right from the start. I let you know right up front what I expect. I don't beat around the bush with it. If you're not willing to do that there, hey, go find someone you want to do some work with because it's not me. I got no problem with that. I expect a lot. I expect you to surrender. I expect you to call daily. I expect you to write daily. I expect you to go to meetings every day when you first get clean. I expect you to get in, find a home group, get in part of that home group. I expect you to participate in the home group. I have a lot of expectations that I'm going to let you know right out front. I'm going to tell you, and I expect you not to run when we hit them their issues inside, and you want to run. I expect you to work through it with me. I don't play games. My life and my time is worth too much, and your life and time is worth too much to me. That we're not going to waste time with this stuff. We're going to get right to the core issue so you can start recovery. And I talk about these things up front. 
I learned that from Jimmy Kennan. I learned that from Joseph Proctor. People will hear them names if they come around here long enough. They're going to hear about Jimmy Kennan, our founding member. They're going to hear about Joseph Proctor, who, who was my first real NA sponsor. They're going to hear about Greg Pierce, who was my second real NA sponsor, who wrote the 12 traditions in the Gray Book. They're going to learn about these individuals who gave so much to us. And they're going to hear their, their, their CD links or their tape links today. Well, they, they're all links now, though. They get on Spotify, you do this stuff, you hear these people, and then you're in awe. You're like, oh, my God, what a message. Everyone I gave Joseph Proctor's link to, they love it. They love to hear Joseph. He's smoothing, right? He's caring. He's compassionate. But let me tell you, he's the only man I ever met that could hug you, okay? Pull your guts out, put them in your face, and make you look at them, all right? And you want to run, you want to hide, because you know that man knows you. And then he's going to stuff that shit back inside, he's going to stitch you up, and he's going to love you back to life. That was my sponsor. I love Joseph. Joseph was the most loving, caring, compassionate man you ever want to meet. But he's the only one that could touch my spirit and my soul. He's the only one that could reach inside and pull out and make me look at myself in the mirror. That's what Joseph was. Joseph demanded a lot. He had demanded every call. He told me one time in around or that going on. It was 2010, trying to get him to speak up in the Connecticut. And he finally picked the phone up. And I heard a voice, and I'm like, what the fuck? He answered the phone. I said, Joseph, how'd you? And he said, and he goes, Bill? I said, how'd you know it was me? He said, because I've been listening to you ever since you asked me to sponsor, and I have an answering machine yet. He said, and I sit there, you call daily. He said, I don't even sponsor you, but you still call. I said, I follow direction well, don't I, Joseph? I said, I need you to come up to Connecticut to a history convention. And him and I and Jim Miller sat there for the whole conference, the convention together. We all cleaned up in 79. We all had something in common. It was, it was writing the basic text. We all had something in common, commitment to this fellowship. All right, and Jim Miller was a, a spirit that died on us later, a few years back. Either, I think it was, uh, was that 17 or 18 he died? Thought it was 17, but uh, I, I gotta look at the year to make sure, but he died in recovery. Joseph would have celebrated 44 years in May. Jim would have celebrated 40 year, 44 years in May. I'm coming up in 44 years in November. Okay? But we were like a trifecta. Jimmy sponsored Joseph. Jimmy sponsored Greg. Greg sponsored Jim. I was sponsored by Joseph. I ended up with Greg as my sponsor. We all got the same direction. And we all got involved heavily in this fellowship. We all wanted to carry the message beyond. They still carry the message from the grave. Anyone listen to their CD links in this room? Hmm? Yes. All right. Some powerful stuff, isn't it? Huh? They can cut right to the chase and get into your spirit, even on, on the grave. 
when you get that type of share, you get that type of experience, you want this program. You want what it has to offer. You want to get involved. I remember the first time I walked in this room. We come in that door over there. I didn't come in that door. I came in that door. There's very few of us in this room. There's very few of us in this room. And tonight we have over 40 some of us here. Not everyone fits in the room. There's a couple sitting outside the doorway. Tell me that's not a miracle. We're in the business of miracles here, folks. This is the business of miracles right here. And if you get to the FS and the EFC, okay, you're going to be part of miracles. You're going to be part of miracles. You're going to be part of the, the crying, the loving, the, the caring. You're going to be part of camaraderie. You're going to be part of helping out. And you're going to walk out of there next year knowing you're going back the following year. That's the difference. You're going to want to be there. You're going to want that experience, folks. <clears throat> I think about that type of stuff. I look forward to coming over here. And I look forward when the people come over to the FSC. Okay? Right down the street from my hometown where I live. About 25 minutes, a little bit west in Hamburg, PA. I look forward to that, these three things every year. I also look forward to the tradition thing we do once a month right now on Zoom. I look, for, I look forward every month to the step things we were doing. I look forward to be able to, when you guys are having your big, uh, what do you call it, a barbecue? That's what you call it, right? Yeah. Six o'clock, I'm going back inside, okay? I'm going to be there from 5.30 to 6. I'm going to eat what I can eat, and then I'm getting back inside because i got to get on a meeting in Russia, all right? They want to talk about their, their two-year celebration of, of, of an NA literature translation stuff, which I found out today. I mean, not today, but before I came over here, they asked me if I would do that, and, and they told me they had the whole grade book translate this team, which I didn't know before, and they're going to send it to us. They want to translate all our literature that we got on the nahelp.org for us, and they're willing to put our Anonymous Foundation stuff in it. That's a miracle in itself. There's a miracle happening. I just spoke in Russia. Uh, Herman just put the link up on Spotify. And it was such a magnificent participation of questions afterwards. I think the questions were more than what I shared. Because I, I, tried, to be, I tried not to be controversial when I shared. I tried to be positive and talk about the writing of the basic text. And then afterwards, they started asking me all the controversial questions, wanting to know. I was overwhelmed. It means these people are listening to the stuff that's out there. They're listening to my shares at History Days. It means they're educating themselves and want to be part of this greater movement of Narcotics Anonymous. When it says free there, but I want you to understand that's not free. It's free for a brand new person when they walk through the door. But how many times are you going to throw it in that, that there, whatever you have here, I don't know what, you pass a piggy bank around here now? Huh? Huh? A meow? Huh? You pass a meow around? You're going to put in a thousand times more than that book ever costs, okay? So you're actually paying for it, folks. And you're helping so other people can get it when they walk through the door for free. But you keep coming here, you're going to pay a thousand times more or more than that. I probably paid... 
tens of thousands more than what it costs to put this book out today. Because every time we participate in giving back, the seven traditions more than money, though. It's about commitment. It's about responsibility. It's about putting that PI stuff out there, moving the bike around. You've got a lot of stuff you can do here, folks. It's about going to translation days, making sure you have more and more stuff in your own language. So you know when someone walks in that can't speak English, they got a book in their hands that speaks their language. And that's what the translation days do. You come together, you experience one another, you, you get your input and review in, and it becomes your book. It's now your book. You become part of what we wrote, and you're reliving it. You're reliving what we did in the early 80s. You get to relive that and duplicate it today. And if you want to start an IP of your own, start it. All right? Just do me a favor. When you write in your own language, translate it to English so we can read what you wrote. Okay? That's all. All right? So if we do that, think of the miracles we can do here, folks. Think how many lives we can touch. Addicts are dying every... Jimmy Kinnon's dream was to reach every addict, wherever they're at, that's suffering, that there's a promise of freedom from what? Active addiction. There's hope without dope, right? There's hope without drugs, folks. A message of hope and a promise of freedom from active addiction. Think about that. That's our responsibility. Each one of you, now you know it, you have a responsibility. You're here. Six months clean, you got a responsibility. Okay? You've got one day and you're here. you got a responsibility to get involved with the program. you got a responsibility to learn the program so you can go give it away to somebody else. That's our responsibility. No one else's. I'm tired of people sending people to rehab to get help. When they should be getting help right here. We can help people. We can help people right from the start, as Jimmy Kinnon said. Jimmy Kinnon said, why not right from the start? We don't, and, he, and it's in his writings. We don't believe in long-term withdrawal from society. What do you do when they send you to these places? Long-time withdrawal from society. And then they send you back home full of dope. So now you got to get off the dope again. They don't detox you no more, folks. They just give you something to replace it with so you don't have to go through the pain no more. But, you know, the pain, it doesn't get relieved. It doesn't get relieved to your clean and start working the program, folks. we got to start doing this stuff together. Our responsibility is togetherness. Our responsibility is we. Jimmy Kinnon did something when, he wrote, when, when they put our steps together. He put we before him. Not like the other fellowship where they start about, they don't got we. It doesn't start off with we admit it. We admit it that we're powerless over addiction and it left our lives unmanageable. You know, and I'm tired of people looking for the solution in the first step. Read the first step. You know what it says? When you, when you have completed the first step, guess where you're at? The void. There's a void there all of a sudden. That void is to push you into your second step so you can start the process of getting restored to sanity. So you can start the, the, the process of coming to believe in something greater than us. It doesn't say greater than me, it says greater than us. It's key words, greater than us. 
This power is so great, it's power than greater than everyone in this room. It's greater than all the power within the Fellowship Narcotics Anonymous together. That's how great this power is. You need to define that power. you got to come to believe in that power. And then you can move on to the third step where it says, we made a decision to turn our will and lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Well, there's a key word. As we understood him, it means we're going to those that came before us. Because we don't have an understanding. It didn't work for us, did it? This God stuff didn't work for us before we got here, did it? Or we wouldn't have been putting drugs in our body. Wouldn't have been doing none of that stuff. So we didn't understand God when we got here. We got to get rid of all them past thinking processes and get new ones. I come to believe in something greater than us through you, through my sponsor, through Jimmy, through all the people I was helping write the book with. We start to believe in something greater than us that wrote a book. That's the power. That was so great, a power of addicts coming together and writing a book. The greatest power is working when you're, when you're coming together and translating the great book, translating the, this book, and getting in your own language, and you're working together. That power is that great that it happens, and miracles happen. When I'm, when I'm watching at the EFC, and I'm watching three chefs working together, right? And then I go to step retreat, and all the groups are working together there. All the sponsorship and sponsees and everyone's working together to make sure that facility is taken care of and, and people are cleaning, cleaning, helping get the, the food out. People are cleaning up afterwards and people are making sure the garbage is out. And at the end of the spat retreat, we walked out, everything was done and we're all there yet. What a unity thing. We're all out in the back there. Everyone's together. And we're looking, what else do we need? To, it's all done. So we got a hug, we got a fellowship, we got to talk about coming here. See? Excitement in the air. The excitement should propel you to move forward in recovery, to let go of past thinking processes, to allow new stuff to enter you. Quit going back to the old well that don't work no more. Now we come to believe in something greater than us, we come to believe in this God. We move on to the fourth step. Fourth step is not the one that removes the, the house off your shoulders, folks. The fourth step is one you get in depth with, you get to understand yourself, you get to see your patterns, you get to see your disasters, you get to know who you are, all right? The fifth step is the healing process starts. People don't understand the healing. Everyone's coming here. They want to be healed right away, don't you? You want to feel good right now, don't you? Huh? Don't happen that way. The fifth, the sixth, and the seventh is where the healing happens. Quit looking for it in the first, second, and third, and fourth step. You're just getting to know yourself. You're just getting to know other people. You're just getting to get involved. You're going to have old thinking trying to creep in. You're going to have old patterns trying to make you make the same old mistake over and over again. But if you learn to surrender and go to your sponsor and talk with your sponsor before you make them, you stop repeating the same insanity over and over again, expecting different results. See, that's in the book. Stop doing it. Learn to live it. Learn to practice it. And when I think about this here, because I'm talking with a few of my sponsees, because they're on their fourth step. I'm telling them the miracle doesn't happen there yet. Happens in your fifth when you sit down with your sponsor God, another human being, the exact, and you're admitting the exact 
nature of your wrongs that you're going to go back through your four steps. You're going to see them threads, the exact nature, and you're going to you're going to admit it. Admitting ain't total surrender, is it? It's admitting it. You're accepting it. That's me. And then the sixth step, we're talking about going before God again, right? We're, we basically, in the sixth step, are opening the door for God to start the healing process. That's where the healing process starts. We admitted it, and now we're going to ask God to remove our defect of character. I believe there's only one for me. I believe it's fear. Fear sets up everything I do, all them patterns, all that tits trust with my wife when I first got married to her because I'm still looking at my mother and I'm seeing my mother running around on my father trying to escape the abuse. I'm seeing her trying to help us, but I didn't know she was trying to help us to remove us out of the abuse, but abandoning us at the same time. Where he's got five sisters and me living in the house without a parent. It wasn't healthy. I ran away. I, I went through a front bay window one time. Right through the bay, and I kept running until I hit San Francisco. And I lived in, the, in that culture out there from 14 to 17 until I joined the United States Army. I was running my whole life. But when I admitted, it was all set off by fear. And I needed God to start that healing process. I needed to surrender through the help of others and from discussing things with my sponsor and his sponsor and with other people in the group, having a good home group that work through the difficult growing pains that we go through. These are all growing pains we go through, folks. Each one of us going through growing pains. Get to know ourselves. Get to know one in each, each and in this room and believing that each one in this room only wants us to be successful. That's all. We have, sometimes we're a little rough, okay? Sometimes we're a little tough. Sometimes I'm real tough. I don't play games. I don't have time for it. I'm gonna look you in the eye and I'm gonna tell you the truth. You're gonna know it when I tell you the truth because I'm gonna look you right in the eye. I'm not gonna talk around your back about you. I'm going to look you in the eye and I'm going to let you know what I see. Regardless of what you think or how you feel, you can run away if you want, but I would suggest we work through it. I would suggest you work through it with your group. I never changed home groups. Since it got clean, I'm in the same home group. Other people left. Other people, oh, there's personalities, there's this, there's that. You know what? There was people not willing to work through it. That's all. Some of them returned to using. Some of them died. Some are in prison for life. Some are out there using yet today. But I'm here. I got a great life. The miracles happened for me. And then the seventh step. What do we do? Talks about we become, we humbly, humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. What are they? The reactions to our defective character. What God is trying to heal our defective character. Now we got to deal with all them other things we found in the fourth step. How we reacted to this and that and this and that. So we stop reacting. We got to learn to have a forgiving heart here now. Because if you're going to do an eighth step, okay. Talk to the eighth step, okay. We are going to write a list of all the people we harmed. Oh, my God, no more justifying and rationalizing, right, of what people did to us. 
right? Can't blame our parents no more. We can't blame the lawman. I can't blame the judge. I can't blame the freaking district attorney anymore. I can't blame my abused childhood. I can't blame any of that stuff anymore. I'm being accountable for my actions, what damage I did throughout the years. I have learned to forgive my father for all the abuse. We did a ninth step together before he died. We did it. Why do I say we did it? Because I walked in his house that day with my little children, and I had my, my children and my wife go in my, the door aside which was with my grandmother's house. I said, I'll let you know if you can come over. I walked in, he picks up a beer, and I said, Dad, you don't want to see me today. I'll see you later, and I walked out the back door. He followed me that day, and I heard him call me son the first time in my life. The man called me son. And I turned around and he asked me for forgiveness. And I asked him for forgiveness for what I tried doing for years to him. I took accountability for my actions, not what he did. And I was able to do a eulogy six months later as the father loves his son. And my sisters asked me to do that eulogy for my mother this year. They said they met a man they never knew through me. If it wasn't for the program, they would have never met that man. They would have never known that man who could embrace me that day and cry with me and call me son and ask for forgiveness. And I could put him in the grave six months later and do a eulogy about a father's love for his son. I met my father that day and I recognized him as the addict. I recognized him as a prisoner of addiction his whole life. I could recognize him, he was trying to help me even through his abuse so I didn't head down the wrong road. I could see he loved me that day. What a son wants from his father is to feel loved. What a daughter wants from their mother is to feel loved. What we want to feel when we walk through the doors is love, folks. We want to feel cared for. We want to feel our lives matter when we walk in here. We don't want to feel hopeless. We don't want to feel like shit no more. We want to feel that our lives matter. Through this fellowship, I believe we can all feel our lives matter. If we work together through the steps of the program of recovery and we get activated and we get involved and we get to these things and be part of, the key is being part of. The step, the tenth step is real simple. We promptly admit it when we were wrong, right? We take daily inventory, okay? We take our, and we, and then I don't like that second part. Promptly admit it when we're wrong. I don't like that second part. I'd rather just catch it before it happens. I'd rather look in my wife's eye and see her, don't say it, Bill, when she sees I'm ready. I'd rather say, you're right, I'm wrong. Even though I didn't do it yet, I'm still wrong, okay? I'd rather catch myself before I do it. I'd rather catch myself. And I'm not saying I don't harm people today, but I promptly admit it immediately. The minute I become aware of it, I promptly admit it. It's humbling when you got to do that. We're embarrassed when we have to do that. 
We're embarrassed when we got to talk to a sponsor and say, hey, I harmed you. I didn't mean it. However, I don't justify it either. And it may be just the way I sound some days. It may not have to do with anything I said. It may be the way I sound. Okay? Fear can create strange reactions from each one of us. We want the best for each person in this program, but fear gets in the road some days. We get afraid you're going to go back out. We don't want you to live in that horror, and sometimes we try to force it upon you. It doesn't work anyway. We need to be responsible for everything we say in these rooms. We need to be responsible, and we are the only ones responsible. We're not to say anything that would chase someone out of the doors. That's what it says in the book. I know what's in the book. I can't tell you where. Your job is to find where it's at, because I don't know where it's at. I just know it's there. I used to have a guy in the program. He'd go, uh, I'd say that, and he'd go, oh, it's on this page. Oh, you found it. Great. Thank you. But he knew the book but didn't know how to live it. That's the difference. I don't know the book, but I know what's in the book. That's the difference because I apply it. I just apply it, what's in there. I know what's there. You've got to find where it's at, though. And, Garrett, you know what happens when you do when you have to search for it? You're going to learn the book. You're going to study the book. Get together with people. Study it. Find them words. Find where they're at. And you'll be rewarded. You'll become the book instead of, like we said, when he put that flyer out, that Memphis. You are the book. Well, by studying the book, you become the book. You're part of it then. You become part of the recovery process. Through prayer, through prayer and meditation, we improve our conscious contact with God as we understand him. See how it shifted from third step to eleventh step? Third step is we understood him. Eleventh step is we understand him. We come to an understanding of God. We come to that point where we can grow in the spirit and we can develop that conscience contact with God. We are now consciously in contact with God. Not saying you didn't have them bits and glimpses throughout your recovery, because you have. But now it's accumulation of these, and now we're developing in further. We're getting deeper into it. And it gives us how to do it through prayer and meditation. So we learn to pray. We learn to believe in our prayers, and we meditate on it so we can hear God's voice. I know what I'm supposed to do with my life today. I'm not deviating. I'm, I'm just walking out there in the, with the full armor of God every day, being in touch with people that I never thought I was, could be in touch with in my life. I become a productive member of society as a whole. I'm interacting with society on all different levels. I just spent... Uh, a week ago Friday down at the Pakistani embassy talking with the ambassador. Uh, he sat here, he sat here, I sat here, and my other friend sat there. All right? And I was talking about some of the things that they're doing in their country, and we can no longer tolerate that behavior of hurting people anymore. I couldn't have done that before I ever came here. I couldn't participate in that level before. But there I'm sitting as a person that people respect in the community, that I'm they're not even addicts, they're not even our program, but they respect me. I just met the Ukrainian bishop of Philadelphia last Saturday, and then before he left the meeting, he wrote down his number and said, please call me, I need to talk with you. And I talked with him, 
and it's because of this program and the results of the way I present myself that he wanted to talk to me. And he says, whatever you're doing with this other stuff I'm doing, we're all in. You can have the use of our facilities. Well, I'm going to get some NA meetings in her facility too now, okay? I'm going to find more places for us to meet instead because we become an example of recovery in other people's lives and other reactions with other people. And it's outside the program. We're carrying this message outside the program by our behavior. We got to be aware of our behavior in public, folks. We have to be aware of what we're doing, how we're doing it, how we're developing ourselves, and, and then the 12th step. Have and have. What's it talking about? A spiritual awakening? Is it all of those steps? Well, it used to say those. Now it says these. It should be those yet. All right? Why do I say it should be those? Because the previous 11 and a half steps, we've had this uh, spiritual awakening. It's an accumulation of all the spiritual awakening since we walked through the door. When you felt, felt, felt part of it, it's a spiritual awakening. You have many of spiritual awakenings along the road. You don't have to wait to get to the 12th step to have had a spiritual awakening. You're having many of them. This is just the accumulation. Having had a spiritual awakening, the result of practicing those steps, we practice these, these principles. These principles are the 12 traditions. See, those and these. There's a bridge there. It's a bridge to the 12 traditions of Narcotics Anonymous. All right? If you get to the conference, if you get over to EFC this year, which I want to see every one of you. I'm going to show you where it says that in, in, um, in one of our old basic texts, okay? Where it says those and these. All right, because I brought my old third edition with me. Where it's, well, that's how it's stated. It's stated as those and these. As ha we had this spiritual way, the result of practicing those steps, we practice these principles, and we, and then it says we try to carry. No, we don't try. We do carry the message. We do carry this message, and Jimmy instructed us on how to carry the message. And we're only responsible. We're the only ones responsible for it. He doesn't say the world's responsible for our message. We're responsible for it. We're responsible to get it out here to the addicts who still suffer. That's our responsibility and only ours. Think about that stuff, folks. We got a great responsibility, each one of you. And if you've been here for more than one day, guess what? You got a great responsibility already given to you. All right? The person one day clean helped write the book, folks. And, they, and, and you hear any of the literature people ever remember, it's going to tell you that person one day is a <coughs> contributor. All right? So you can contribute right from the start. You don't have to wait. Get in. Put, go feet first right in. Get involved. Make this your way of life, folks. I have. I'm here to help. I'm here to participate. And each one in this room that I know has been involved in this stuff is willing to participate. So hook up with people before you leave. Get their numbers. Give them your number. See, I always say the most responsible thing we could do as a group is get the newcomer's number. Make sure they're overwhelmed with phone calls right from the start. Make sure you pick them up the next day and get them to a meeting. Go sit down and have coffee with them. Get them together with a couple of addicts and study the book with them till you get to the next meeting. Don't wait to the next meeting. Get together with them. Fellowship with them. 
All right? You want to go for a walk in the woods? God knows some of you like walking in the woods. Take a couple newcomers with you. When you get in the woods, sit down and study the book together. You don't have to wait to get to the meeting that night. You can do it right in the middle of the day. You don't have to wait. You think life's boring? You start hanging out with one another. You find out life is not boring anymore. Boredom is not having enough to do, folks. So get involved. Join us. Participate with us. I'm here to help. Thank you for allowing me to share a little bit of my time with you. Thank you, because you participated by listening. Okay, before I share, you know the deal. Get up and hug one another while I pray.
Herman. Herman, you ready to record? You ready? Okay, I'm an addict, I'm Bill. And uh, the first thing I want to acknowledge, we have two newcomers here. One just rode his bike today to be here with us, 15 years old. Could you please come up and let us know who you are? that one and yeah. give the other one that one okay yeah. all right they're afraid to come up and get their hug give them a hug don't let them get away with that yeah. now those in answer day and those in hangalo be looking for him to be in your meetings Make sure you get his number before he leaves here. All right? His brother, he's going to be going to both meetings, right? Okay? Get his number. They're going to need numbers, but get their numbers so you can contact them, please. Because that's what it's about. Reaching out to new people, bringing them into the fold, into the family. I mean, I'm just uh, phenomenal. I, I think everyone should applaud themselves for this weekend, so... Please, I want to applaud you. Thank you. I thank you from my heart for what you've given me. It's so important to me. While you were out there having dinner, I was in here on Zoom in Russia. And an old friend of mine who cleaned up in June of 1979 was also speaking. And uh, it was phenomenal because I shared first, and I told him I wanted to share first. I was not sure I could stay for the whole meeting at that point. Uh, but then Terry shared, and he went right off of what I shared. And we talked about the early days of Narcotics Anonymous. New York City had two meetings on Labor Day weekend of 1981. We already had seven meetings a week going in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And uh, I met him through the process of recovery, through going to, going to uh, Miami Beach to the, to the 11th World Convention. I met so many people. Uh, my sponsor, Joseph Proctor, got me to go there. And I think when you think about the people along the road that you meet and the people that mean something to you are still carrying our message. We heard a lot about our message here. We heard a lot about how we recover. We heard a lot about Jimmy. Well, this Zoom meeting was about Jimmy also because Terry was sponsored by Jimmy. And um, I think the phenomenal things that happen along the road are important. When you get clean and you stay clean as long as I have, you're going to have stories to tell. But they're going to be experiences. They're not stories. They're experiences, strength, and hope of NA recovery. And to be on that call uh, and to see our friends, my new friends in Russia, it's the third time I've been on there with them, and then to see uh, Olaf 
to see my friend from Iran who got on after you guys had left to have lunch. We were in here talking with Ernas. Part of it's recorded, but uh, we didn't know how to, at first we didn't know how to get the recording going. Arnas is there again? Love you, Arnas. Great. Love you, brother. But he was there. He's back again. And then our friend from, our friend from South, Car uh, South Africa is having problems. He, he was sitting here. I don't know if he's back or not. But he was trying to get on again. So having friends that you make around the world like this are so important. So much bonding. Goofing off out in the hallways, okay? Uh, having girls boxing, girls boxing me, all right? Because the men ain't big enough to box, all right? But the girls are boxing, you know, and wrestling, you know, just like enjoying myself, enjoying myself. You know, recovery is the most awesome thing in the world. But how we support one another is what creates that awesome feeling. What we do here matters. What you do here matters. We talked a lot today. We went through some great workshops today. We talked about outreach and we talked about con group conscience. We talked about public information. They're all part of the same philosophy. They come from the home group. And that's what Terry was talking about, how home groups need to get back to do it. Well, he don't realize he needs to be more connected to see home groups doing it again that we went back to the old way, the way that worked, the way they grew the world, the way they wrote the basic text. And it's just it's so enjoyable to see that. It, it's enjoyable to see people coming back here that's been here from the first conference to the second, to the third, and now to this one, and from last year and the year before, you see a consistency building. You see something building, you know, and, and you know, it's just like, I, I just think about things like that at the FSC, the people that continuously come back. I mean, I'm the only one there from the first one, but there's been many, we lost some along the road like Jim that died on us, you know, and uh, we lost others that left over, over uh, not having patience not having patience to develop conscience, not having patience to do what we do, all right? And they want to fight with the other structure. We're not here to fight. And to know that and to feel that and see the consistency that we are an example, as Greg told me back in the, in the early 80s, we're building models around the world. And your area is a model for the rest of NA. And I never got that after he died. What he was talking about, he used to tell me, you're doing something that don't exist in the world. Well, we're doing something that hasn't existed since the early 80s. That's an amazing thing. And it's still the same philosophy of Jimmy. It's still the same philosophy of Joseph and Greg. It works. And we're no longer going to tolerate anything else. We're going to work through things. We're not going to run. We're not going to hide. We're not going to allow personalities to divide us. We're not going to allow the disease of addiction to separate us. We need to understand it's addiction that separates us. And what does it use? It uses our 
shortcomings to separate us. It uses that defect of flaw to separate us. Is what it does. When I sit down and I look at writings, people think I don't look at their writings. I look at their writings, but what I'm looking for is patterns throughout their writings. I'm looking for things they're stuck in. I'm looking for things that are going to trap them. They wonder why I have them writing and I want writing daily. There's a reason for that, folks. Writing is the greatest healing tool we can have, but when we consistently write, we start to open up. Our minds start to flow. We start to see these things that entrap us. They're there. They're vivid. They show us that there. The hardest thing we do is point it out to a sponsee or to a grand sponsee or someone else, a friend of ours, when we look at the writings and say, this is what I see. There's no negotiation. This is what I see. All the justification rationalizations don't matter to me. Because if we don't break these patterns in our life, we're never going to be a benefit to help somebody else. And that thing I wrote about Jimmy, I read it in, in the Russian meeting again. But our responsibility, and only we can do it. Terry shared about that because I read this, but he shared about this because what he shared about, we need to do what we did before. We are responsible for that. We're responsible for sponsorship. We're responsible to 12-step people. He talked about when we had people on our couches. We didn't send them to rehab. We took them home with us. And he said, the next day, if I had to go to work, I'd shift them to somebody else. They were taken care of. We took care of our own. That's a lost art. People don't want to do that. People don't want to allow people in their homes anymore. They forgot how to help one another. And that's why we're in the state that we're in. I mean, you go in my house in 81, when I lived in 12th Street in Allentown, 644 12th Street. I remember we had the reporter from the town. He going to do something for a Narcotics Anonymous, going to talk about our fellowship, where our meetings are. And then I got the article and I looked. I said, what the hell did he do? If you read it, you'd think Narcotics Anonymous was my house. If you read it, you'd think that, that he wrote all about the people sleeping in the couches, you know, and he wrote about my wife baking and the coffee pot brewing and stuff and the answering the phones. And I'm like, where's the, the about the meetings I talked to you about? And I was really upset and uh, because that's not what it was meant to be. So I learned not to trust reporters. I learned not to trust reporters. If you're going to do a reporter, you want to be able to edit what they write. They got to get approval is what I learned from that experience. I wasn't there to be built up. I wasn't there for other people to make me great. I just wanted the word out that we do exist. And people used to read the paper back then, an actual newspaper. They used to read it. And I thought it was such an opportunity. And instead he violated my hand, and then he violated my ad He put my address in there. So he's sending people to my house instead. And uh, my wife was really upset over that. We're youngly married young in marriage, and uh, our son was on the way. I had, I think, six addicts living in my house and one on the couch, <coughs> detoxing. 
off of some freaking drug called Haldol. Haldol is a really extreme drug from the psychiatrist. And he wanted to get clean, so he asked me, can I come to your house? Yeah, you can come there. You had to pick him up, you had to take him to the, up to the shower, you had to feed him like a baby. And he sat there for 60 days before he talked. And he's like, he thanked me for what I did for him. I think about them type of things. You know, when, when you give of yourself, you're giving back a hundred times in fold. I've been given a thousand times back and fold. Why would I stop doing that? Complacency kills addicts. I don't have room to get complacent in my life. I think about these type of things when I come to places like this and making ourselves available for others. Making ourselves available for phone calls, writing, visiting, breaking bread, all right, all these type of things. And I'm calling out a Yankee fan when I see one, okay? Still wearing that Yankee hat. <laughs> We're gonna take him down to Philly. All right, well, I'll sit him up on the top and let him be with the animals. But uh, I just think about the fun we had. We just were at a Philly game, a few of us from over here. The Philly game never happened. It rained out, but we hung in the stadium for over three hours. And then my, this week, my, my family will be there before I go home because they can, they're going to use them tickets up and they're going to be at the game together. I told Gabe before I left, have a great time at the game. But I just was at the game because they sent us two other tickets and him and I got to go. I got to spend the game with my grandson and we won. And that was important. We won the game and he was... Then the car key wouldn't work. We couldn't find the car. We was there at midnight. and we, I said, Gabe, we're going to sit here. The car's going to emerge after every other car leaves. <laughs> and then we're looking out in the parking lot. There was the car exactly where Gabe said it would be. He said, gee, man, we went by here. So we sat there and waited. And all of a sudden, there's one car sitting out there, our car. And I walked out there, and I pressed it. I said, hell no, Gabe. <laughs> they ain't beeping. Here the key went. Wasn't the car, the key thing went, went to work. So we got in the car, got home about three in the morning. And he was so excited from being at the game and the victory and eating the cheesesteaks. And, you know, that's what you enjoy from, in life. You know, Ramon showed me his daughter, and I remember the day she was born. I remember at, he was here at the conference, and he, he spent most of the time at the hospital. And I still remember going to see his baby born and being there and seeing his little child and to see her now. That's the stuff that touches my heart. The conference was great. It was insane. Okay, that's when we blew everything up. But the greatest thing, a baby was born. And the mother lived. If it was up to the hospital, the mother would have died. And I still think about that when I'm looking at her and she, her lips are blue and they're going to release her, they're ready to sign her out. And I told Ramon, she ain't going anywhere, she's staying. She's dying. And Ramon talked to the doctors and stuff, and they, then she stayed. They took care of her. But otherwise, he'd have taken her home and she would have died. And he would have been devastated with a dead woman, with a baby, having to take care of a baby and, and having to bury 
the baby's mother. Would have been devastating. But luckily, I was in the hospital with my grandson and saw the same thing, blue lips, and he ended up turning totally blue and died, and they brought him back to life. I think about things like that. I watch miracles in my life. I'm so excited about recovery because I wouldn't have these moments to spend the last almost eight years. God, I'm going to go home. I'm going to be at my grandson's eighth birthday. A week later, he had died. He goes to me one day. He's going up the stairwell. We get to the top of my stairwell, and he looks up at the picture and said, that's Grandpa Johnny. I said, you never met him, Gabe. And he looks at me. He says, gee, man, you remember when I died? And he goes, you're the only one that knew I died. And he says, I was in heaven with Grandpa Johnny. He, I was sitting on the rocking chair on his lap. And he told me I had to go back and be what mommy, mommy needed me. I asked him what was it like. He said, I didn't want to go back. I wanted to stay. It was beautiful. He said, but Grandpa Johnny said I had to go back. I spent three months down in the hospital with my daughter while that little boy fought for his life. And when you see the pictures of him being in a little thing with tubes all in his body and being monitored, all kind of machines on him, you realize there's more than life and all this crazy shit out there. And when he was saved and brought back to life, and when he could share that with me, it tells me there is a God. There is an afterlife. And he was there. Coming out of the mouth of a babe, and he's telling me this stuff. And we have a special bond. I know there's a God. And if you do anything in this program, I shared at the step retreat. I talked about I don't do the little GP, I mean HP. I do the big GP. I do the God. I don't do HP. That was put in there to manipulate and con us. To think we don't have to go on this spiritual journey. I don't believe we should ever manipulate a human being. There has to be a greater power than all of us, and it's in the second step. You better find it. It's all I know. If you don't find a greater power, you're not going to be able to help you here. If you don't learn to, and build, meet that spiritual power, and I don't care what you call it, I'm being honest with you. I don't care if you call it the hubba dubba bubba, but it better work for you. You better have a belief system. You better have that spiritual feeling. You better be filled with the spirit in this room. God exists in Narcotics Anonymous. I turned my will and my life over to the care of that God. Through my sponsor, he walked me through it, so we did it. Not I, we did it together. Through the rooms, I've done it. With the help of others. On this path of recovery, it's all about the steps. If you do not develop the steps, what message do we have to carry? What do we have to talk with other people about if we don't develop the steps? Without the steps, we have no program. The steps are our program. A friend of mine says it's like they're on, hanging on the wall, the 12 steps and 12 tradition is how we apply these principles. 
the short form on what it says. Doesn't say we're perilous over drugs, does it? Anyone ever read that? I used to think I read that. Never realized saying I was perilous over addiction. When I first got here, I thought it, I thought it meant drugs. Drugs never, ever forced themselves in my body. I made a decision to, to do drugs. I made a decision to do drugs. And everyone I ever participated with made a decision to do drugs. We can blame the whole world for why we do what we do. However, do we take accountability for our own actions and stop blaming the world when we get better? I don't care if you think you lived in horror in your disease. We all did. Different levels. Different levels. Your horror that you lived in might have been the most devastating life that you ever could have had. But to another human being, they're looking like, well, let me show, tell you where I lived. It doesn't matter. That person's horror is just as important as my living through child abuse, extreme child abuse, being forced to drink when I was five years old with my father. It doesn't matter. The physical abuse. That person might have been so mentally abused. I would rather be mentally abused, I mean, uh, physically abused than mental abuse. I would rather not have to live with total degrading of a human being that some children get from their parents. You're worthless. You're never going to amount to anything. You're in the wrong body. You should be a girl. That's what my father said to me. All right? Doubt your sexuality. And yet, when I got here, people loved and cared for me and brought me back to life. That's what this is about, being brought back to life. This is about camaraderie here. This is about being able to share with one another and then to build trust with another individual that trusts you to be their sponsor or trusts you to send you the writing that no one else is going to know about that writing. That that rests in that relationship that you're developing. It's that important. If a sponsor goes out and violates the amenity of their sponsee, it devastates that sponsee. If we, if we get in the N.A. gossip train, we devastate people. Nobody has to know what my relationship with one sponsee is to the other sponsee. It doesn't matter. That is not their business. When you talk to me, I don't want to hear about your spouse. I don't want to hear about your, 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 uh, your boss. What they did, I want to know what part you played in it, what type of actions. I can't help that person. Joseph did with, that with me all the time. I could tell him how fucked up the meeting is. He said, Bill, what part did you... The meeting opened. I, I used to bitch like, how come uh, I'm doing all the service? He'd ask me, is the meeting open? Okay. Was the coffee set up? Was the literature out? Was there someone there to open up the meeting? I'd be like, but Joseph, it's me. And he, I don't want to hear about it. Was it done? Have gratitude that you're able to do that. I'm not here for your complaints. I'm here how to live in the solution. Joseph taught me that. Joseph taught me when I complained about my wife what part I played in it. Why, why am I reacting in that manner? 
do I know where she's at? Do I know how she's suffering? Quit being so self-centered is what he taught me. And then he talked, and then he'd go into the book and say, well, it says we're totally self-centered, Bill. We're totally self-centered. What part of that don't you understand? It's all you're thinking about is yourself. You need to rise out of that, he told me. You need to think about other people and the way they may be. You don't know how her day went at work. You don't know how her day was when you came home with the little children. You don't know any of that stuff. Be grateful she's raising your children. Be grateful she's staying with you. That she's treating you with respect. Why are you always concerned about you? And I realized I needed to be concerned about my reactions. I need to be concerned about all them shortcomings that set me up. They're going to set us up to use if we allow it to happen. You get, I hear some stuff and I hear it and I hear it and I'm like, uh, you know, first year we came here in this place, the other place we were at, and, you know, people were in shock. And people get in shock when you go to a meeting and share the message of hope and promise of freedom from active addiction. People say we got to say the, the softer way. There's nothing about softer way. It's about carrying a message of hope and promise of freedom. How do we do that here, folks? What do we do to get that message out there? How do we bond together? And these are the th way I think. I'm thinking about our friend from Iran. How can we assist him? How can we carry the message into a country that he's been lambasted because he chose the Grey Book? He's in a country that we can't get into. But yet we can get on Zoom. Yet I can Skype and, and uh, WhatsApp with him. Yet I can support him. I can send him stuff. That's important, folks, that they have someone that's caring for them. That's the important thing about Narcotics Anonymous, is that we set the example for others to follow. We did a lot here since we got here. We've done a lot so far. I mean, it's just amazing what we have done, how we have grown. Tomorrow we're going to talk about what's your vision. Then you set the vision out. Then you got to live it for the next year and come back. And then we'll see if we live the vision. If we're committed, if we're totally committed to Narcotics Anonymous, if we're totally committed to the group, if we're totally committed to work through our difficult times, our personality conflicts, uh, I can really care about what we don't do. I care about what we do. What we don't do is going to stifle us. What we do do is going to grow us. This is about growing. This is about how we grow. And I think about them type of things. How do we grow? I had a lot of fun today. All right? I had a lot of fun today. And if you didn't have fun, I want to know why not. I want you to come up when I'm done and tell us why you didn't have fun then. If you were trapped in yourself and not self-centered and didn't reach out and touch someone and have some fun together, experience one another's spirits, and bond so you have people to communicate when you go back home and you didn't touch other groups and intermingle with other groups and start thinking about other groups 
not thinking about your local area, because I'm going to tell you, you only become as sick as your local group. You only become as so sick as your local area. Joseph taught me to get out. I traveled the world now. I traveled the United States. I've been to Alaska. I fished in Alaska. Had fun there. Was there for three weeks in the summer and the sun didn't set. So I didn't sleep for three weeks. I fished for three weeks. And then I go to meetings and hang out and I and share. They'd have me talking all the time. But guess what? I had a great time. My wife was a little upset when I come home after three weeks and didn't sleep. But I was so excited I couldn't sleep for a few more days when I got home. Just the enjoyment of it. To sit up on a... And up on the upper end of the Tanana River, and I'm looking at a glacier coming off the, off the top of the mountain. And I'm seeing how rough that river was. And then I'm looking at the river, and I'm looking down. I said, I've been here before. And, he said, and my friend said, yeah, you dogs flood it there in the wintertime. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? He said, yeah. Remember when my friend took you in a 12-man dog sled? We went up this way. He said, that was, that was the Tanana. It was freaking class five rapids, and you had me dog sledding in there, but it freezes almost solid, so it was safe. But I'm looking at the river, and I'm like, holy shit, you could have killed me. But it was such a beautiful thing. It's when, when the temperature dropped that day to 70 below, and we went on them dog sleds, and we put the bunny furs on, and he took me up that river. Never knew I was on the river, but he took me dog sledding, and I never dog sledded in my life. What an enjoyment. I've got to do things in Narcotics Anonymous that I would have never, ever experienced in my life. Dog sledding. Anyone who's ever dog sled? One. Ain't it an enjoyment? Yeah. Yeah, it's an enjoyment. It's unbelievable. And to see the, the, the midnight sun, all right? Then I was up, and when I was there with dog sledding, I saw the aurora, the beautiful colors in the sky. I mean, I enjoyed every moment of my time there, and it's only because of NA. You know, that trip, I, I opened up the Philadelphia Regional Convention as the opening speaker. Okay, my son's fifth birthday was. My daughter was just born, my littlest one. My youngest daughter was born. I opened up the... I, I just come back from Alaska. This is crazy. The baby was due two weeks earlier. But I said, what are we going to do? It's time to go to Alaska. She said, get on the plane. The baby will wait. I get back on a Monday. Thursday night, my friend painted uh, the hole upstairs, painted my new daughter's bedroom. All right? And then at 3 in the morning, I went to the hospital. We had a baby girl, my daughter Ashley. And we had that baby girl, and then that night I was down in Philly opening the convention. But first we had a party for my son James, his fifth birthday. And I took my daughter Jessica with me. And I got a big carrot cake for him. And all my friends in N.A. brought him birthday presents. And we had a great five-year birthday for him. Got to see my daughter born, naturally birthed. I never would have ever experienced. I saw my son when he was born. I thought he was. I thought he was. Uh, I thought he was dead. He was pure blue when he was born. They pulled him out, and I'm looking. I'm like, the hell, he's dead. 
And then the, the doctor hit him on the ass and he started crying. And he saw life. I would have never experienced life be, like that before. See, these are the amazing things that happen in Narcotics Anonymous. I got to experience three children, my children born naturally. I got to be part of the whole thing. I coached my wife through it. I mean, I remember when my son was born, they wanted to give her uh, drugs. They wanted to give her an epidural, and I looked at the doctor. He looked at me, and he's coming in, and he says, I'm going to give her an epidural. I said, I want you to understand something, son. You try to put that needle in her, I'm going to knock you the fuck out right now. And the doctor ran out. I said, you don't worry about her pain. We've gone over this. I'm going to get her through it. We, I was that convinced you're not going to put a drug into my wife and my kids are never going to experience that from birth. Only because of Narcotics Anonymous that we get through that. And I could go through the natural birth as she screamed and hear her screaming and feel her pain. And I never saw so much pain as a woman giving birth. It gave me a new respect for mothers. It gave me a new respect for mothers. And I was able to be part of that three times. I mean, where else could this ever happen? My life has changed so many times. I always say, the door is closing, quit trying to push the door back open. Look at the door that's open and go through the door that's open. I had a vision when I was a child and never knew what it was. And, and I was up in, I was in my dream in heaven and I'm going through rooms. I was never allowed to stay in the room, I had to go to the next room. And each, each room was gorgeous, each room I could enjoy. And I go to the next room. And I woke up startled. And it left this here trap for me for years. And, and I'm telling you stuff I never talked about Narcotics Anonymous before. I never talked about all three of my children being born. I never talked about this dream. But that dream left an impact on me for the rest of my life. And I was scared. I was always trying to force the door open that was closing because I was scared. I was scared of what was in the other room. I, it was unknown. I realized that when I got clean and moving forward, I had to leave the old doors closed when they closed. I had to quit hanging on to it. Yes, I got to go back and look at it to see the patterns, but I need to move to the next door. I need to move to the next chapter of my life. My life is constantly changing. I need to change with my life. That's what the dream was about, and I never knew it. I know I was scared. I had fear, immense fear. A fear to change. Fear to change. How many of us hold on to fear to change in this program? Don't leave before the miracle happens. That was a theme back when I first got clean. Don't leave before the miracle happens. You earned your seat. Never alone, never alone again. All right? It's a theme that was there when I got here. These things matter to me. They matter to me. They're an impact on my life. This thing I read about Jimmy Kennan is an impact on my life. I read it here today. I read it at the Russian meeting today. I talked about it. And we are responsible for one another. 
we are responsible for your life, your life, your life, and each one of us is responsible. Leave your self-centered life behind and become God-centered. Reach out to the energy wherever it's sat in the world. Don't be enslaved to a local area that stagnates. Go and get the energy and bring it back and help the area not get out of stagnation. These are the things I learned as I stay clean. I've always been traveling in Narcotics Anonymous. I spoke, I've been on the speaker circuit years ago. I know what the adrenaline's like when you're up there and you're speaking and you got 10,000 people applauding you. I became so good at speaking, you could be acting up back there, I stop and ask you what's so funny. If you have something, no one's doing it here, but then there was, okay? And you had 10,000 people, I point to the back guy and I talk directly to that person. If you have something that's funny, could you please come up and share it with us all? We'd love to have a laugh with you. If you have something better to share than I'm sharing, please come up, I'll step down. No one ever took me up on it. If they had, I would have stepped down. I didn't need to be up there. I never expected to speak before over 10,000 people. I did that out in Los Angeles, in Long Beach, California. And I was just, then I went and saw a meeting that night and a guy named Pepe was sharing. And I'm looking, we're out in an amphitheater. There's only a hundred of us there. I think something's wrong here. You got all this clean time. You got this great experience through the steps. Why weren't you speaking in that meeting? He said, because you needed to be. I didn't need to be there. He said, I was there listening. You needed that for you. Here, the only people that are here are the people that want to be here. The rest of them are in the, in the playroom, the dance. They're doing the flirt and they're doing the dance, he says, and they're going to have problems from what they're doing. You are here because you want to hear a message of hope and promise of freedom and how to work the steps. You people that are here are here to learn and share experiences, strength, and hopes on what you're doing in service, how service has been in you, how you're growing N.A. There's a difference. You're here because you want to be, and that's what Peppy told me. He said, that's who I want to talk to, those that want to hear the message. So that's why we're here, because we want to hear it. We want to learn from one another. We want to listen and hear your shared experience and how you're doing. And you heard uh, English talking about their learning here, sharing of information, sharing stuff like this here, okay? Sharing, you know, you got Matt in Ohio, got a PI bike. He got stolen, he built a new one already. It's only because of your PI bikes that he saw online that he wanted a PI bike. See how it works? It works the same way. We find ways to do this stuff, to get the message out there. Let's not stagnate. We've grown this far. This is my ninth year here. We've grown this far. Let's not stagnate. We drew a map up. We showed you a map today. We showed you the different cities. We showed you where the, the centers are at. Let's expand. Let's grow together. Let's find new people. Let's bring new people into the rooms. Let's clean up our own yard before we try to clean up someone else's yard. 
Let's take care of our own. Let's inspire one another. I mean, we have that opportunity right here, right now to do that. I think about these things because it's been my life. Someone's telling me I've seen people go out after 10 years. I watch people go out in religious zeal also in, with 10, 20 years clean. Forget about where they came from. And you know what? They all have in common. Each one of them tells me, I'll never do that. Each one of them told me that. I'll never do that. I'll always have N.A. And slowly, their guilt trip by other people, just like they tried to do to me, guilt trip me. And I always told them, if you guilt trip me, I will leave. I have my God. I experience my God. My God's going to take me where I need to be. And my calling is to help addicts, no matter what. My calling is to help addicts find recovery and have the same opportunity that I've been given. That's my responsibility. I think about those things. And when I see the writings, I can see them traits in there. What do they say about reservations? Anyone heard about reservations? Anyone come back from relapse? Right, come back from relapse, right? How bad was it when you went back out there? Huh? Very dark. You didn't pick up where you left off at, did you? You ended up where you would have been. It's the same trait, always comes back. There's no different. We welcome you back in. No, you're not a brand newcomer, but just the first time here. But we got to treat you like a newcomer, but know you have knowledge. And that what we need to do is deal with what the reservations were so we don't make that mistake ever again. And we need to reach out and welcome them people in the, back in the home. Not guilt trip them for what they did. But uh, we're sponsoring people like that. We need to get to the core of what happened, why it happened, and correct it. This is about corrective measures here. From 75 to 79, I was in and out of uh, churches. I was in and out of prisons. I was in and out of psychiatrists. I was in and out of another fellowship. I got paroled everywhere. The parole officer was trying to control my life, and I thought the judge was after me. And then they want to uh, evaluate me in 78 that I, I'm, I'm mentally, I, I got, I'm, I'm manic depressive schizophrenic, got to do drugs the rest of my life. Then I got thrown out of a halfway home from one-way street for not doing drugs, okay, and not going to AA meetings. So I went to about 20 NA meetings a week. So they threw me out that I wouldn't follow the house rules. That's how they got rid of me. You won't follow house rules. So what? I moved into a garage and got my recovery moving. That's what I did. I moved into a box in the garage with concrete walls, got the Bangkok flu that year, Almost died. So don't tell me about COVID because COVID was nothing to that Bangkok flu. That Bangkok flu kicked my ass. It had me hallucinating. I used to get put in an ice tub five, six times a day, an actual ice tub. The doctor put me in there and I'd sit there for a half an hour so he could break the fever because I was up to 108 fever. He didn't think I was going to make it. It kicked my ass. So when this COVID thing hit, that was nothing. That had nothing that the Bangkok flu had. So 
I don't get caught up in that stuff. I don't care what the world says. I didn't mask. I didn't take shots. I started recovery and I kept the recovery first. We couldn't meet, so we met in the parking lot. We didn't close our meeting down. We kept our meeting open. Then the, the pastor finally in the middle of winter said, you can come in, I think it's pretty cold out there. All right, I think we're gonna let you in the building, but you're the only group in the building. And then we'll make sure, I said, well, I'll clean the plate. No, we'll make sure we send a team in to clean it. I still cleaned it, they didn't need a team. I sanitized the whole building downstairs, sanitized the door handles when I left. Something I always do anyway. What's the difference? But they finally left us in. Our group never shut down. Not saying groups, some groups were forced to shut down. We found technology, we found Zoom, and I spoke on a lot of them places around the world. It helped carry our message. It helped us bind. But now, almost everyone's back to meeting in their meeting facilities. That didn't shut down. There are still, still some people out there on Zoom. There are some meetings on Zoom yet. Some of them people are afraid to go to meetings yet because they're afraid they're gonna get COVID again. I could care less. I'm not gonna live like I'm in prison. I remember the prison door shutting on me. I remember the guard telling me when I'm leaving, I'll, I'll keep the cell warm for you. You'll be back. And I always ended up going back. The vicious cycle. And I didn't wanna live that way, locked in my home like that. We found diners that were open down in Kutztown, okay? <laughs> that they wouldn't comply. And we went there. And when we found them diners, we went and took the whole family to have breakfast together. And feel like we're part of the human race again. It's only because of NA that was possible. It's only because of NA I could resist and keep my family as normal as possible doing that thing. And talk with my sponsees that were struggling with it, that they didn't destroy one another, that we kept focused. Some of our sponsees had problems. They got through it though. When you hit, when shit hits the fan, that's when you find out what type of program you have. Did you know that? It's easy to recover when nothing's going wrong, right? We all know that, don't we? When everything's going right, it's easy to recover. But when the shit hits the fan and you get that call and your daughter's calling you saying, hey, I think Gabriel's gonna die. Shit's hitting the fan. When her husband leaves her and we gotta pick the ball up for her and her children, shit's hitting the fan. How do you get through that? How do you get through that? When they're shutting your electric power off because you didn't pay the bill, or they're, they're threatening to take your home from you because you can't pay the mortgage. I've been through all them things in my life. And guess what? I get through everything. My, I tell my wife we're trying to remortgage some money and stuff because of the last couple of years helping my daughter, building two new bathrooms. And uh, the credit went crazy the last two years. All of a sudden, stuff you're paying 12% is all the way up to 28, 30% on credit cards. Well, now she's thrown in debt. And I'm like, well, let's see how, what we can do about it. So we're going to get a loan to clean all that debt up for about 5, 8%. 
big difference in paying 30%. Now she can see water. Before she couldn't even see the water. She was down in the bottom of the ocean in darkness. Well now she can see the water, she can see the light penetrating, and we can get through it again. I told her, God has always taken care of us our whole life. Every time you thought we were going to lose the house, I'd figure a way to save it. Every time you thought the electric was going to stay off, I found a way to save the electric and get it back in our home. When we didn't have oil, I found a way to get oil, to heat our home. We never went out with any of this stuff. Come close, but we always found a way because God blessed us. When, when you're struggling and you have no money, you're all, you, you don't know if you're ever going back to work because your mill's shutting down. You lost your workman's comp. There's no income. And you don't have income for two years. You don't know where you're going, and I'm, I'm a man and I won't take handouts. Someone say, go down there and tell them, no, I'm not going to take any government handouts. I'm going to figure a way out. Two years, you know what happened? The people where my wife went to church brought us food. Go out in the morning and there'd be groceries sitting there. All of a sudden, the pastor paid a couple months uh, mortgage for us. All right? No one ever told us. It was just taken care of. God blessed us. Her brother gave her a thought. Some guy in N.A. up in Wisconsin sent me three grand. And I told him, hey, I'll send it back. When I want to send it back, he said, keep it. There were people there that were helping us along the road. People that knew our struggles and were there for us because we were there for them. My wife went up to Wisconsin and sang for his wedding. And he remembers that there because he had her there, not just for the wedding itself. He had her there for the reception. And, and he, she did all the songs for them. Did the bridal song. It made an impact on him when he knew we were struggling. He sent me three grand. He called me up and says, Bill, I want you to be watching your mailbox. I'm sending you something. I opened it up. There was, there was three $1,000 bills in there. Fresh. We could pay our mortgage for three months. See, that's what happened, how miracles happen. Do I have faith or don't I have faith? I have faith. And I always talk to my sponsees about faith. It doesn't matter what happens. Have faith that we're going to get through it. We're going to grow this fellowship. We're going to be on a movement that's so great, there's nothing that can change it. I'm going to tell you something. I've heard speeches about movements. I want to tell you this is a spiritual movement. No one can stop it except us. It's our choice to either get on the movement or not. Our choice. We have a choice to make right now, this moment of time together. Are we going to be part of the movement or not? I say we become part of the movement that's greater than all of us. And we bind us together and change the world, as Jimmy always said. As Greg said, one addict at a time, one group at a time. Change the world that we are no longer going to tolerate selling our program out to the highest bidder. I'm tired of it, and I hope you are too. I didn't come here to preach. However, it's what God said in my heart today with everything, talking with the Russians, hearing the cry outs from Iran, hearing the cry outs from people around the world. We are tired of it. We want, we want to help one another. We do not want profiteering by our office any longer. 
We're tired of the books going up in prices. We're tired of them creating books that aren't ours. They're, they robbed your spirituality back in 86, 87, 88, 89. And I said it right in the conference floor, what you're stealing, you don't even realize it. You're stealing our spirit, you're stealing our hope, and you're killing our people. It angers me. But we're going to do something about it together. Each one of us is going to make a commitment and we're going to look at that vision. We're going to com complete that vision tomorrow. And we're coming back here. Those of you who are in my sponsors the same will be back in May for five days. Those that aren't and you're here, you're invited to it, okay? Anyone that's here at the FS, I mean EFC is invited to that sponsorship retreat. We do open it up to people that come here. All right, we do open it up with some of the people in the Netherlands that are sponsored by other people. We do open it up for them to be part of us because we don't, we're not, we don't close it down like other sponsorship families. We open it up. And if you have a newcomer that's in your meeting, bring them with you. Let them experience five days here in a spiritual retreat. The most greatest thing I went through was here back in May. And this is just as great for me here. So let's make a commitment together right this moment. And I want to see who's going to make the commitment by putting her hand up. I'm putting my hand up. Are you going to make the commitment? Are you going to follow through? Are we going to carry this message around the world? Are we going to grow your group and grow each group and get new meetings going? And let's get the message out there. Thank you for the message of hope and promise of freedom.
gave you the floor and uh, you okay. could start sharing. Do me a favor and just get up and hug the person inside of you, okay? Please, while I pray. I'm an addict, and I'm Bill. Uh, don't mind me. I'm a little bit tired, a little bit hot here, but uh, you know my mind has not stopped since I left EFC. It doesn't end until I end up at home. So uh, another night with very little sleep because my mind doesn't stop. And I'm thinking about the weekend. I'm contemplating what we didn't get done and what we need to do. You know, and, uh, I'm thinking about the fellowship as a whole and what our purpose is and uh, how do we carry this message. And, uh, you know, thought I had a, thought we had a design I was going to release here, but I'm not going to do that because we've got to flip the pyramid around. All right? <laughs> Because uh, the pyramid is the wrong way on this design, okay? It's supposed to be flipped upside down. And uh, the umbrella is supposed to be holding it from the point up. The top is supposed to be God. The next level is supposed to be the NA members. Should be the, broad, the second broadest. And then the NA home group should be the third broadest. And then the local areas which we're starting to develop should be the next level. And then national, regional, which is not even a night, I mean, a, it is an old ideal that we would develop later. The EFC, which we have developed, uh, Iranian Fellowship Service Conference that we're talking about developing, uh, the Russian um, Fellowship Service Conference, we have question marks behind these because we're going to develop them. Uh, the African Fellowship Service Conference, these are all places that members were on Zoom participating with us this weekend. And uh, there's some really traumatic, I mean, I don't call them traumatic, but there's really exciting things going on there. There's really exciting things about carrying the message and the message of hope and promise of freedom from active addiction. And then we got... Uh, the FSC, uh, the Anonymous Foundation is part of the FSC, and committee coordinate, coordinating is part of the FSC, what we're starting to develop. Uh, and then we got the, the webmasters that uh, we got six web pages connected now. Uh, that can be interactive to go from one to the next to the next. And uh, 
you can find meetings in these parts of the world. And I think that's the important part is the availability of finding meetings, finding where you can connect. And uh, the development of these things, you know, uh, I start looking at what I talked about, my purpose, and what I'm doing at the FSC level is I'm the anonymous agent. And so I'm thinking about what I'm presenting things there, starting to develop that, starting to get the research. And I went online, I could get part of the research, but being over here, I couldn't get the rest because our federal government wouldn't let me download it, okay, over here. I, I, didn't, I didn't realize my, my computer says I'm here. It doesn't say I'm in the United States. So when I get home, I got to do that. So I got a project right when I get home. Uh, you know, but recovery is the utmost thing we can do. Brand new person walked through the door here. That's the most important person in the room. So will you please stand up and tell us who you are, please? Hi, everybody. I'm Joey. Hi. Welcome home, Joey. I want to make sure before you leave, you give everyone your phone number, and you get everyone's phone number, okay? Because you're, you're home, and you should feel your home. So we're here to help you and assist you to find recovery. So that's our most important person, and that's important to us. So before you leave, get a hug from each person. Uh, you know, that excites me. Someone came to me, so we get a brand new person. Uh, someone sent them here to us. So that means your PI efforts are getting out there. That's an example of public information, letting people know we exist. Without telling people we exist, it's hard to find us. Word of mouth is helpful, but making people aware of us is more helpful. You know, and I'm thinking about them type of things when, when I'm out there on the road and I'm talking with people and I'm fellowshipping with other people and uh, dialoguing is the important thing we can do here, communication. You know, uh, I cleaned up in 1979. I've not had to go back out since. So recovery is possible. Relapse is not a must here, it's not a requirement. We'd rather not have you go back out. We'd rather have you just stick and stay. I don't tell people to keep coming back. I just tell them stick and stay. You're home. There's no reason to leave. And I've not left since I walked through the door of Narcotics Anonymous. You know, I think about them things because they're that important to me. Uh, people are talking to me about, oh, I, I, I made four phone calls today. Great. However, where, do, where are they two people who can help you? I think about, it's great you made the calls. However, my sponsor doesn't count. I call my sponsor. That number doesn't count. Who have I called three or more people that can help me in my recovery program? I mean, I think about stuff like that. Have I prayed? Have, have I done my reading? Have I done my writing before I start my day? See, I got two times that I set aside for, for prayer, reading, and writing. But it's reversed at night before I go to bed. Before I go to bed, 
I read, I write, and I pray. Why, I'd say, recovery happens between prayer and the prayer. The start of my day and the end of my day is where recovery happens. And it can happen in the middle of the night when I wake up, I pray again. I got a constant vigilant action of prayer in my life today. I didn't have that when I came here. I was scattered-brained. I think about what I was like when I came here. I was scattered-brained. I, I had a hard time retaining a thought, let alone getting a program based on, on principles, let alone be organizing my mind to do these type of things. So I was led to that by other people. Other people shared with me how they found recovery. So I seek out those who came before me, and that's in the basic text. We, we, it's those who came before us that are going to share a message of hope and promise of freedom from active addiction. They're going to share with us how they got there. They're going to qualify, which I didn't do yet. I qualified with my last night using. You don't know, need to know anything about my using except that point. There's only, there's only one moment that got me here. No other moments got me here. All the using over the years were lack of surrender, lack of wanting a desire to stay clean. I had no desire to stay clean even that last night. I had a desire on how to die, and I planned my death. I planned it perfectly. I planned it the way I would not be looked at as a weakling. I valued things. Even in my addiction, I valued what a man should be. A man should not commit suicide. So how do you die in the proper way? How do you die without people talking bad about you? How do you die without people thinking you as a mental case? Hmm? Violence is perfect. It's a perfect way out. Dying by the hands of others in a battle of, of war, basically. To die and be taking other people's lives and being shot by the police. You get a front page, you go out in the bang. I mean, so we all want to die in glory, right? Any warrior knows that they want to die in glory. It's, I mean, even the Vikings knew they, if they died in battle, they're going to Valhalla, right? And, and the Crusaders, they knew if they died for, for taking the Holy Lands back, they were going to heaven. So, where's the best way for an outlaw biker to die in battle? And I chose that way to die. And God intervened in my life. God changed my life. Hopelessly addicted, not no, couldn't even get off anymore. You know what that state's like when you can't get off on drugs anymore? And you're stuck. You're stuck in an emotional state of, of uh, ultimate depression wanting to die and not knowing how to do it and then you finally get there and God decides to intervene in your life? That's like, what the fuck? I just cleaned all my weapons, loaded my Harley up, loaded my body up with, with ammo and now it's time and I get a phone call. And the woman says to me, can I have five minutes of your time? And I'm saying, well, what, what would that do? And then she said, you're not afraid to die, you're afraid to live. She challenged me. 
I, I gave her five minutes to turn it into this day. That's the difference. God chose me. God chose me to bring me to Narcotics Anonymous for a reason. His reason was unknown. I just know you go to meetings. I just know someone said you go to daily meetings, so I go to daily meetings. I don't hear that 90 and 90. 90 and 90 to me is a setup. 90 and 90 say, what do you do then? What do you do after 90 and 90? Anybody know? Go to more meetings. In addicts, a 90 and 90 doesn't, it's, it's all that's do is going to get us started. It's a setup, though, after 90 days. Oh, I can cut back now, right? I don't have to do this shit no more. My sponsor said you keep going to daily meetings until he tells me to stop. But Joseph didn't tell me to stop. So I went to five years of daily meetings. And then I'm like, what the hell's going on here? So I missed the meeting, and then I went back for five more daily, five more of daily meetings. And that ain't all the other meetings I did in between. But I knew I had to go to meetings. I didn't question that. When you think about addiction and the investment I put into using daily, it made sense to go to a daily meeting. I met Greg along the road, and Greg talked to me and he goes to me after 10 years, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to meetings every day, Greg. He said, then all the service you're doing, everything you're doing and you're going to meetings every day yet. Yes, Greg. He said, when are you going to get a maintenance program? What is that? How do you maintain your recovery is important here. How do you maintain it? We're talking about maintenance stuff all weekend, weren't we? We're talking about how to maintain what we're doing in a home group. How does the group maintain itself and keep the energy going in here? Keeping the energy and the excitement that when a new person walks in, they want to be with you, they want to attach themselves to you, they want to be part of the adrenaline, because that's what newcomers are looking for is adrenaline when they first get here. We're looking for excitement, aren't we? What happens when I'm seeing, I'm reading stuff on Radio Free and I'm reading stuff and they're going, oh, I, I, it's getting dull. Well, what are you doing to getting dull? Seriously, what are you doing that it gets dull? I'm going to tell you what you're looking at. You're watching too much TV. You see, you're going over to a, 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 a Turkish restaurant like that person was, and they got this. I'm watching this TV, and I'm like, what the hell do they got on there? What are they doing to men and women today? What kind of shit are they putting out there? I want to take his TV, and I want to throw it through the window. That's where my head goes. After sitting there trying to eat a pizza there and watching that, I'm like, holy crap, what happened? There's no more shooting people. There's no more, you know, insanity. They couldn't this here. little soft type of music and dancing and looking like I don't know what they are. I'm waiting for the guy to kiss the guy. Seriously. I'm like, what are they doing? And I says, turn the boob tube off. I even told them people, you better change the channel and put something on, like nice music for people to eat to, okay? That you can have a conversation while you're having dinner. I knew they used to have dinner music in them places. 
All right, I know when I go to an Italian restaurant in the Bronx, we're going to get Italian music, right? It's going to create an atmosphere. It's going to keep that atmosphere where we're going to fellowship, we're going to communicate, and we're going to have a great time together with NA members when we go there. We load the place up, we get in a nice environment, and we get the nice Italian music playing. You think you're in a mob show. I mean, seriously, that's what it feels like. Maybe you're looking for someone to come in and shoot everyone, too, while you're there. So put yourself to the back so you can see everything. Okay? But it's an exciting time. When we're walking through the Bronx, we're having a great time together. That's the stuff I look for. Not this here goofy shit. I'm looking for excitement, true excitement. Why would I go climb, do mountain climbing on my, by myself? Seriously. Why would I go to Vegas with my father and not, and, and not have my whole trip planned out around N.A.? Seriously, when I go to places like that, you know, I go in wrestling tournaments with, with the whole team, and, I, and we got to take care of the team. I, I let them know, there's, you guys can have all your nights what you're doing, but there's two nights I'm going to meetings while I'm here. I call up N.A. members like when I went to New Orleans. I called up N.A. members, said I need a ride. Okay, when I went down there with my wife for a big conference, I found out where the meeting was, and I, I walked five miles to get to a meeting. I walked there to get there. And then I got someone to bring me back. But I was going to a meeting. I'm always plotting my meetings out wherever I'm going. I'm plotting out my contacts. Someone said, oh, they're coming to New York. What part of New York? They told me they're going to end up, uh, what was that, Long Island. Okay, they're close to Frank. Okay, so I'll get them hooked up with Frank. I'll get them hooked up with a few other people there to get them to a real meeting. Okay, to be there for him so he has contacts when he's there. All right? That's what we do here. We get people to meetings. We hook them up when they come into an environment they don't know where they're at. We take care of them. We make it an exciting experience when they're there. I mean, we were just up in, uh, I never went there before. The first time I went up to Bush School Falls, a bunch of us. And they had me climbing up and down these freaking falls like, a, like you're a billy goat. And it's a hot day. But we went there together. And then my daughter decides we're going to the bottom. I'm thinking, and then she wanted to go up the other side. And I said, I'm not doing that. I'm not going back up to the top where we came from. I'm not doing that. So I walked back up when you had to go halfway up. And then you go out to the. And I sat down waiting for everyone else to come down with a few people. But we experience life together. And when we go to Jim Thorpe, PA, with addicts that come over, we go ride the train up the river. All right? We see the, the historical town where they hung the Molly Maguires. We see things. We experience things together. I come here. I want to go see warm war stuff. I want to see... I want to see dead people, and I want to see their tombs, their tombstones, their crosses. I want to go see stuff like today. They took me to a memorial. I mean, to a, a war museum, and and it just. I mean, when we went in, I'm like, I'm waiting for. Okay, we're going around. I'm thinking we're like down at something like in, in in uh, the Battle of the Bulge. And I wait a minute. Something happens. They open up, and we're in a big freaking uh, 
nothing but tanks and, and freaking planes and, and freaking bombs and, you know what I mean? And little stories, uh, you know, just like, just all kind of stuff in there. And I'm going from, I, we, we had to rush through to get here. And I said, we got to come back here. I got to spend more time in here. And then I got the, the rest of the rhino before we left. Got to put them in a headlock. They had a rhinoceros there, a statue, so I had to put it in a headlock. All right? I mean, just thinking about stuff like that, because I know where I'm sending that picture when I get home. All right? But these are the exciting things that we can do. We make fun of things. We don't need all this crazy adrenaline anymore. The adrenaline we have when we get here, and we need that constant, well, guess what? We got a lot of things for you to do, okay? Right from the start. You're going to see all the Netherlands with other addicts. You're going to travel together. You're going to do things in translation days. You're going to be together. You're going to break bread. See, that's the exciting stuff for me. I'm excited about recovery. I am so excited about recovery today. Recovery doesn't become boring for me. If it's boring, go to your home group and ask what type of extra service they have for you. There's enough to do, folks, that you never should get bored here. You should be overexcited. I mean, we're talking about with someone today about, oh, we'll get the recovery ran, we'll go sit inside these other meetings outside, and we'll sit out there having a meeting in the van. And newcomers come, we'll drag a few in with us and drive to another meeting with them. You know, just joking around, but thinking, yeah, that could be reality. If we get a big enough one, okay, we could build a monster one, and we just drive around and have meetings everywhere. We go into in the cities where you know the addicts are at, and 12 step and bring them in the van. When they leave, they got literature, they know where they're going to. We get them hooked up with people. I mean, that's the stuff that excites me today. The possibilities are endless. They're endless. We just got to make the commitment to this way of life. That's what we do when we first get here. We make a commitment to this way of life. We find hope. We find the people that give us hope, and they're giving us a message, a promise of freedom from active addiction, okay? But they're giving us hope first, and then they're promising us freedom from active addiction. Then they draw out a plan of action for us, and it's called the 12 steps. The first thing in the first step has not to do about drugs. It has to do all about ourselves and being powerless. Get to understand what true powerless is. True powerless, how our past has trapped us and destroyed us inside. I mean, it's, it can take years to come to a concept of understanding it, but you can't sit there on the first step. You gotta be able to move. When you get to the void, you gotta be able to move into the second step and find a greater power than all of us together. It has to be that great is greater than all of us. I mean, that's an amazement understanding if we can get to that point, that this greater power is greater than all of us. And it's, it's basically sitting on top of the pyramid, the inverted pyramid. It's the widest part of our pyramid. And we define that in the third step as God to turn our will and life over to the care of God as we understood him. The key word as we understood him is going to those who came before us. 
We laid a program out, they laid a program out, Jimmy Kennan laid a program out for us to be able to reach out and the older members should be there to bring us in, to, to love us, to care for us, to bring us back to life. And I was thinking about all these things today. How do we do it and how can we do it better? How do we live the program of Narcotics Anonymous? How do we deal with these issues? I mean, this weekend gave us all so much to write about. Every one of us that were there had something to write about in their step work. Did it all plan out the way you planned it? No. Doesn't ever work that way. It takes its own life form. Just go with the ride. I'm talking today about doors closing, doors opening. How long are you going to fight with the door that's closing? You can, if that door is closing and you keep trying to keep it open, what's going to happen? You're going to miss the door that opened up and you're not going to go through where you're supposed to go in life. You're going to keep the past and you're never going to learn how to move forward and let the past go. You're going to be stuck in them patterns. Your writing tells it's, it's about patterns, folks. When I look at a writing, you write a whole lot. I'm looking for a pattern that's in that writing. It tells me about you. My writing tells my sponsor about me. They're looking for the patterns. The patterns are going to pop off. The same mistakes are going to show up consistently throughout my life. Anyone ever run away from home? Don't do that over here? Oh, when I was raised, okay, almost all youth were, youth were talked into running away from home, okay, at one time or another. You get to a point in your, in your teenage years where you start rejecting your, what your parents taught you. You start trying to find your identity. Well, back in the 60s, the thing was go to San Francisco. Okay, and that's where all the freaks showed up in San Francisco back then. That's where the culture was. That's where the music was coming out of. That's where Jimi Hendrix was playing. That's where Janis Joplin, the Grateful Dead, and all these here old bands were going. In England, it was Liverpool. Okay? That's where Sabbath was. That's where Pink Floyd, all these bands come out of there. All right? And people would, went to the music scene. They go to the culture. The culture that was about to set you on a ride of addiction for as long as it could hold you. Thinking you know everything, right? We think we know everything when we're young, don't we? We're rejecting old ideals that were planted in us, and we've got these new ideals, and we've got enough people telling us we're right. You get on the ride with them. And then you, you have, uh, who was it? Uh, Crosby's still nice and young talking about Oh, talking about how many dead in Ohio, okay? All right? And we start singing the song. And then Black Sabbath singing the song. And I still remember this here because I was so attracted. They sang about Iron Man. I become Iron Man. Then they sang about, uh, you ever hear that song? Anyone that was in the heavy metal got to understand the song. Who was having the heavy metal here? Oh, you didn't know heavy metal freaks here? Well, you missed the boat. Okay? Because it said, if you think about it, witches gathered at black masses like, I mean, generals gathered at black masses like witches at 
okay? They're gathered together like witches at black masses, and the war machine keeps turning. You never heard them lyrics? Well, I did. And they resonated. I'm going to war. The energy, Metallica. Oh, my God. The rock, the, the, the energy. It controlled me. I don't listen to that stuff today because what it does to me, I become the lyrics. I become the heavy guitar playing, the bass, the drums. It takes my spirit over. I think about stuff like that, what music did to me, even though I denied it when I got here. I denied it. I became them lyrics. I became them things. I mean, you had the Pink Floyd guy, he committed suicide, went nuts, the original one. I love Pink Floyd. I remember sitting in 1980, and I'm in a halfway home in a one-way street, and I, 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 had a, I went out and bought myself another new guitar. I bought another guitar. I bought a Sun amplifier with 412s and a, and a, a 200-watt power booster on top of the 200 watts to start with. And then I set this, and I get a new stereo, and I set this album up, and I sit outside with all the old people in the recovery house, okay, because it's all they had was old people and me. And this old black guy sitting with me, and I says, uh, Willie, do me a favor. Hit the button. And remember, the, the, anyone ever remember the, the album, The Wall? And we set it up right to the point where it says, is anybody out there? And we made it real loud, 400 watts, powering it into the courtyard. And I'm laughing because all the old people are fucked up now. What the hell? Where's that coming from? Look, I didn't give any of them a heart attack. You know what I mean? Luckily, you think about things like that. There's, that's exciting to me when I do stuff like that. <laughs> then I sit up in my house at 12th Street when I moved there, and I set up my, my, my system, and I'd have the rock playing all night long. And that's, that was the end of that. I gave up music for 10 years then. Totally gave it up. Because I realized the obsession, the compulsion, what the music was doing to me, where it was sending me, what it was doing in recovery to me. I wasn't going to stay clean if I kept doing that. I sold my amps. I sold my guitar. I sold my, my, my expensive album collection. I had... 10,000 albums again. In two years being clean, I had 10,000 albums again. I let it go. I got rid of it. Music was my life. In addiction, music was my life. And it had to be real heavy shit. It had to be stuff that got this, this madman going. I can get going without that. Just get me in recovery. Get me somewhere. Let me be around recovering people and get us out talking to one another. The energy's gonna flow. But the energy's good energy. It's about helping people. It's about finding an addict who's still suffering. That's what the program's become for me. And living the steps, evaluating myself, my, my, my communication levels. Have I offended anyone today? If I do, I need to correct it. I can't live anymore causing harm. I can't do it. But recovery's not about the drugs. We're powerless over addiction. What triggers that addiction? 
I got to find them traits throughout my life that trigger me. What triggers me? Music triggers me. I can listen to a little bit. If I'm getting ready for a, a real good uh, combat, like when I used to win the World Service, I played that heavy metal to go there because I knew I was going into a war zone. And I'd be fired up for days. They're going to put me, I'm just talking about, someone's talking about, we're talking about, oh, this conference and this stuff. Oh, we need to add extra days. I dreaded extra days because five days of world service, they would wake you up every morning at six o'clock. Okay? You have breakfast. You had to be in the conference room at eight o'clock. You're a representative. You don't have the right to leave. You go to four o'clock in the morning the next morning. You go to bed for two hours, you get back up, and you do the same thing for five straight days. And then the last day they try to throw it all through you because you've got to rush it out now. The whole agenda got to be done. But it's constant arguing, constant fighting, constant problems rules, and you're just drained. You're totally drained. And if you ever read the old minutes of the World Service Cup, you see they push everything through the last day is what they did. It was all set up by the conference uh, chair, the coach, the vice chair, the, the trustees, the board of directors, they had it all set up on how they're going to do this. They knew in the beginning they weren't going to get anything through because the fellowship was going to stifle them. They knew we knew everything how to stifle them. But the last day after they beat you down and hardly anyone can move and everyone wants to get out of there, they want to go to Mexico, or they want to go wherever they want to go on the beach, who planned a little vacation afterwards? I go to Mexico every year. So, from 84 to 90, I went to Mexico every year. And I go down there and hang out in Tijuana, buy some rugs, buy some leathers, okay? Pay for my whole trip, okay? When I go home, I got all this stuff that I promised people I'd pick up. I get a, I get a rug for five hours, so I buy 100 rugs in case take them home. And then I go buy leather vests, leather chaps, leather jackets, take them home, sell them again. And I make a lot more money that paid for my trip 10 times over. That's how I did it, but I'd have good. My, my friend used to get pissed at me. We'd go down to Tijuana, I'd get $100 worth of quarters, and I'd throw them out in the street at the kids. You know why? So one of these kids is going to get to me where I want to go, and that's to find the cheap price rugs, the cheap price leathers, and get me down in the underground when you win a total different market. So that $100 paid off 10 times over. All right, I got an extra $1,000 by doing that from that $100. But I had a great time down in Mexico with, these, with whoever went with me. We'd be laughing, we'd be eating real burritos. If anything, you want a good burrito, go to Tijuana, okay? So you know you gotta go to Tijuana, okay? For a real burrito. Well, I can get you in there, don't worry. We'll go through the open border part, okay? All right. They can come across, we can go across the other way, okay? But we'll eat burritos. I love their burritos down there, so we'll get good burritos. You know, uh, you know tacos. We'll get the taco truck going right now, okay? <laughs> we'll bring everything back from Mexico, and we'll get the taco trucks running. You know, I have fun with this type of stuff. When I went to Moscow, I had fun there, all right? Even though I had to speak for two full days and I had to speak every night for two hours, I had fun. I had a lot of fun with people in recovery. 
This thing's about not becoming stagnant, learning how to live life on life's terms. Jim McKinnon talked about it, become fully recovered. What is a fully recovered addict? Not in our book anymore. They removed that part of Jimmy's stuff. It's when you can become to the point in recovery that you can be the productive member of society, and that's not the NA society, but you're fully integrated with NA and recovery and living life on life's terms. Don't mean you ever recovered, totally recovered, because you got these problems that are always coming back to haunt us. So we got more work to do. I have a lot of work to do. I got a lot of work to do how to interact with my grandchildren. They're a little bit different. They've been, they've been damaged already by their father. And I'm thinking about it, I am their father figure now. I took on that role. So when people say, oh, I got three children. Well, I got three, I got seven grandchildren, but three that I'm daily involved with. In one level or the other, either I'm taking the girls to cheer or acro practice or, or Gabriel's now uh, playing soccer, so I gotta go to soccer games with them. I hate soccer, but when I'm there, I let them know I love it. Sitting with them at a Philly game a couple weeks ago, him and I, and we're eating cheesesteaks. Right away, we wanted to go to Tony Luke's. Wanted to get the cheese fries. Wanted to get, you know what I mean? So cost me, uh, what, for two of us, 50 bucks for two cheesesteaks, two fries, and, and a large soda for him and me. So $50, but you know it's worth it. <coughs> to see that little kid when we won the ninth, bottom of the ninth inning, to watch him get so excited. And then we walk out, right? We're sitting there and we're pressing the card, the thing that y'all got that opens up your car. This one don't got one, does it? Yeah, buttons on them, right? To open the car up, car's not beeping. And we're looking at the lot and we're like, we walk out, we get halfway out, and then I asked the, then I asked their security, where is there a part in the parking lot that got one porta potty? Only one. And it's in the way back. And he says, Oh, it's way over there. So him and I walk way over there. Well, we couldn't see where our car was. So I told Gabriel, What we're going to do, we're going to go back there. We're going to sit down till everyone leaves. <laughs> when everyone leaves, we're going to be able to see the car. And then his mother's foot. His mother's flipping out. Oh, my God, what are you doing with Gabriel? You're sitting down in Philly with him. I said, don't worry. Me and Gabe got it together, okay? <laughs> All right? We're not in a bad spot at the, at the stadium. You know what I mean? And then he goes, we walked around the stadium. Then now we took a, about a half-mile walk together. And then he sees, oh, all the baseball players. Can't we come here sometime, G-Man? Can't we just hang out and meet them? I said, yeah, next time I'll take you there and we'll hang out. May not get out to 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, but we'll have a fun time, Gabe. We'll get more cheesesteaks so we can sit out there eating cheesesteaks so they come out. But, and then we finally get back around, and then my wife called a friend of mine up, my fishing buddy from down there, the doctor, and his wife's coming over. She said, well, I'll be over. Look for a big a yellow Humvee. She said, I got a brand new, I got a new Humvee I found. And I says, okay, so we're waiting and waiting. She didn't get there, and the lot totally emptied. I saw the car. 
I didn't think I, I should. There's a white car out there at Davy's. Yeah, it's right where we left it. And so we walk out there, and I'm pressing the button. It's not beeping. I said, what the fuck? Are we sure that's the car? So I walk over, and I, real, and I opened it up. It didn't lock when I left. I should have known that the key thing was shot. Because it didn't beep when I left, but I thought I locked it. So we got in the car. I sat down. He strapped himself in. I hit the ignition and started up. So then I called the person up that was supposed to come and help us. And I said, you know, the car started up, but we found it. It's the only car in the lot. <laughs> that would be ours. Then I called his mother up. She was almost down. She was almost down to where the, she was down where the turnpike ended already. So she told me, I'll meet you at the next exit. And then we got there. Then she followed us home. But uh, we had a great night together. That's living. Living. Life, living life on life's term. Adapting, improvising, making changes, not getting caught up in the negativity, but enjoying it. Not worrying. How many of us worry when shit happens? Right away my daughter's flipping. Someone must have, my wife flipping. Someone must have stole the car. I said, I know the car is there. We just got to find it. You ever walk out in a lot and, and, and not be able to find your car? All right, that's all it was. I said, you did it, Jess. You and James. When you walked out of the arena down in Hershey, PA. And the real issue, it was really cold that night. You just couldn't even, James had to take you back and put you in the arena because you were getting frostbite already. Then he went out and had to break in the, in the, in the thing because the lock wouldn't work at all, so he had to figure a way into your vehicle. You know, and get it started and then come to the door and get you. I said, so what makes you any different than me? What makes me different, I don't panic. That's all, I learned how not to panic. I learned that because I came here, how to get through life, how to deal with ex-old family members. What triggers us, family members? What do we struggle with, our upbringing? The patterns of our youth, the rebellious of our youth, the rejection of our family, our family trying to control every aspect of our life. You know, these are the things we struggle with in life. How do we get through it? This is what we deal with here. Drugs are not our problem. I've talked about this since I got here. Drugs are not our problem. So what is? Our thinking process. A rejection of our feelings. Thinking a man doesn't cry. It's inbred in us, a lot of us. Where our fathers brought us up not to cry. Be tough. What happens the first time you cry as a man? Hmm? You want to tell me, Peter? What happens the first time you cried? It hurts. Huh? It hurt? Vulnerable. Vulnerable. And want to run. Right, want to run. Especially if someone trying, is there to bring us out. We really want to run from them because we're being naked in the program. People are really getting to know us. But that's the breakthroughs. This weekend I saw men crying, crying like babies. We embrace them. I saw women crying like babies. We embrace them. 
It's a breakthrough. It can be the greatest moment of their recovery, a breakthrough. They can grow the most, they can move the, the most, they can make things work. But reverting to old ways will only stifle growth. I think about them type of things. The first time I broke down like a baby, it devastated me. I cried and I, and I was like, I couldn't stop crying. And I'm like, what the hell? This is totally what I was never brought up to be. Questioning me as a man, feeling embarrassed because I cried in front of people. I struggled with these things, folks. I struggled with them. I had to let go of them. I'm no longer that tough guy. I can be tough if I need be. But I don't have to be. I don't have to hold it in anymore. I can let you know who I am. What makes me vulnerable? What I, you can try to plan the, plan the outcome, but don't plan the results. That's something I talked about this week. You can plan the outcome, you can plan the function, but don't plan the results of what's gonna happen. Let it take on its own. Let it happen as it flows. Adapt as it flows. Make sure if you see someone suffering that you spend time with that person while they're going through it. Make sure they feel their home. Hug them, help them, encourage them. Help them with their writing. If they don't know how to write, teach them how to write. Remember, when you write, you're not writing for another individual, you're writing for yourself. Yes, another individual's gonna see your writing, you're gonna talk about your writing to another individual, and hopefully it's your sponsor. Hopefully you build up trust with a person in this program if you're willing to allow to sponsor you. Hopefully you join a home group that you can feel part of. This happens. Hopefully home groups are gonna sponsor people till they can find a sponsor. All right, and not force them into sponsorship. Hopefully a home group's gonna help them Find a place where they fit. And it just may not be my home group. It might be some other home group. But it's to get them there. Encourage them. This whole fellowship is about encouraging one another. All right? Not running, not hiding. It's becoming a responsible, productive member of society again. Not holding on to this crap. Not living the old ways. I mean, if I do that, what am I worth? Yeah, I, I talked to my wife about this because we're doing some, um, it ain't remortgaging, but it is adding things on to our mortgage because we got to clear up some debt. And I'm looking at, she's looking at a negative manner. I'm looking at a positive manner. I'm looking at, you know, uh, what we're worth if, if we had to sell everything today. What we have is about a half million dollars, okay? Well, every time we hit before, we didn't have anything. If we had to sell anything, we were bankrupt or more. We were in debt yet. We were in trouble. God has always got us through these periods of time. So he's going to get us through this simple thing. All right? I'm looking, when she makes a decision to totally retire, we can take about 200 grand and throw it into a Roth IRA, and it can make us money instead and not have to pay taxes on what I make in that IRA. 
I'm looking at what we can leave. By the time we decide that God decides we're going home, we should have a million plus dollars disseminate amongst our children. Now I start to think about things like that. What are we going to have when it's time for us to go home? I'm not caught up in money, but I'm caught up in planning the money. I'm caught up in saying, what do we need to get through? And to have that money in case we got to help Gabriel, if something happens to Gabriel and he, gotta, he has a mental, uh, I mean, he has a heart issue and he got to go back in and my daughter can't go to work. Can we help her family get through that? Is the money set aside to help them? I don't want them to become a liability of the state either. I don't want the state supporting my grandchildren. I want to take that responsibility as the, as the, the grandfather. I want to be able to help them through that, that they don't feel the ward of the state. I don't want them ever to have to feel that. So we can do something about that. I couldn't do that before. I could do that today. God has touched us and put us in position to be able to help them. And we've gone through a lot since I first started coming over here. And Gabriel, uh, basically, it's, this is my ninth conference, but it's my eighth year in a sense, since Gabriel was born. He died at a week old. He ended up going to emergency room in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and they basically were ready to pronounce him dead when Children's Hospital came in from Philly and did a miracle on him. It took him three months before he could be stable for an operation, <clears throat> and they brought him back to life. We've been in and out of Children's Hospital for the last eight years. We were in and out of that for three years earlier with my granddaughter. My granddaughter, she called me up over here. She wanted to tell me she got a part in the chorus, and this is a middle school chorus, but no sixth graders ever get in there, and she got in. It's an upper level chorus. She has the voice that's beautiful. She just had a main part in the play, and, and it's all they did to put her in the, in the town newspaper on the front page talking about her. Here's a girl that was critical for three years of her life. She has brain issues. She has uh, aneurysms they're watching. She got the cyst in, her, in, her, in the third eye gland. She has, uh, they, they treated her for, what do they call that? Uh, it ain't epileptic, but it's similar to that. She had seizures. She had to be treated for them. She goes in and out of Children's Hospital. But we're working through with her, and she's a very talented young woman. Young girl, actually, going to you know, go through the transformation soon to become a woman. I'm there to help them get through it. I serve them. I serve Narcotics Anonymous. I serve a lot of different areas. I learned what it is to be a servant, to walk in the all experience of a spiritual awakening as a result of the old steps to practice these principles in all our affairs. And these principles are the traditions. I learned how to get to there. We just decided on the 24th we're doing our tradition workshop that Sunday. Okay, the one we were supposed to do today. No, yesterday. But we couldn't do it when we're here and we had to do things. You know, and I wasn't going to have that interfere with the ending of the conference and have to direct right into that. So we rescheduled it for the 24th. We're adaptable. 
But the traditions are so important for the group to stay together, to grow together, to carry our message. The vehicle we're talking about to carry the message is the 12th tradition. The bridge is the old way, those steps, these principles, the 12th tradition. And that's what the group adapts. The group has to keep them first. We have to apply the 12 traditions so when that newcomer walks in, they're the focal point for us to carry the message. He gives us the opportunity. You give us the opportunity to carry the message too. That you are in that important. We can't carry the message unless a newcomer walks in the door. If we don't have newcomers, we don't grow. We don't have the ability to do our 12-step work. Here's where 12-step work happens. It happens here. There's old time what we call 12-step work, but that's going out and getting the addict here so the group can do the 12-step work. When we get someone here, the group's responsibility is to do the 12-step work. And that's 12-step work is leading someone to this way of life, bringing them in, making them part of our NA family, bringing them in that they feel important and they can also give back right from the start. And it tells us that in the gray book. It tells us in the minutes that the person with 24 hours can give something back to the person that walks through the door. And I made it through 24 hours is important. How'd you get through them 24 hours? Because we're all struggling when we get here of getting through 24 hours, aren't we? We're struggling with staying clean. We're struggling with all the personalities we view as. We're struggling, how do we get through it? We work through it with the 12 traditions together. We put aside our differences and look at our similarities. And that's what we do. What are our similarities? What traits do we all carry in the program? What's, why do we stay here? It's because of recovery. So we look at the recovery. What's the process of getting recovery? That's applying the, the steps in our life. We learn the steps, we study the steps, but now it's the application that matters. I talked about that today, the application is what matters. How do we apply it? It's no longer verbal talk, and you can talk about steps all day, but do you got an example of applying the steps? That's what's gonna be the attraction. The attraction is people that apply the steps in their life. It's the, it's, it's the attraction is people that are not focusing on our difference, not focusing on personalities, and focusing on how that person got through, how that person's applying the steps, and you become a living example. I could know the basic text, okay? And know everything that's in it and not apply it. What good does it do? I, don't, I know what's in the basic text. I cannot tell you where it's at. I might confuse them between the gray book and the basic text. I might make a saying that's not in the basic text, but it's in the gray book. Because they're that embedded in my life. They're that embedded in my life. I study these books. I study the gray book today. I study the basic text. I sit down, I'll open the basic text up and read stuff. And then the recollection, I write about it. All right, so that's what I do today. I'm constantly writing about the steps. Constantly looking at my reactions to others. Constantly looking how to let go of shortcomings. How not to be enslaved by my shortcomings. Because they enslave us. Constantly looking at my tenth step. How do I improve my relationships with others? Can I see in the tense that before I do the harm to another person, I, can, I tell my wife I'm totally wrong, and she looks at me, what are you talking about? 
It, it was about what was ready to come out of my mouth is what I'm wrong about. I'm ready, and I can see your eyes, and your eyes are telling me, shut the hell up. All right? And I don't say it, but I still need to admit my wrong in that area. How I was tensed up, ready, ready to blow her up, and then I shut the fuck up. Because I caught myself. But I still got to admit it. I got to still tell her and say, hey, we got to work through something here. All right? This reaction that I was ready to have on you, from what I need a little bit more patience with you in areas. You're, you're scared about our future, I understand that. You're upset with your family right now because it's totally divided what's going out in the world. You got sisters that won't talk to you, but they're gonna be on the phone blowing their, their family app up with their bullshit. All right, taking your inventories for the way we live. We don't have to acknowledge that shit they're saying. We don't own it. Just because we can't be around them because they're saying you's got, you didn't get the shots. No, we're not getting them. All right? And you got all the shots, so I'd rather not be around you. All right? We think differently, but we don't talk about it to them. We, we don't get into it with them. But they're constantly bragging us. They know where we're at in life. We don't have to feed into it. And we don't. My wife is saying, you got to help me with that. I said, when I get back, we'll talk about it, because I know it's bothering you. We will have a conversation. We will look for a solution. We'll figure it out, because I know it harms you. I know you don't feel, you, you want to feel close to your sisters. But it's a problem now. Your sister has chosen to take this path. Her husband has chosen to take this path, and her children are following them. There's a division. I don't know if we'll ever heal the division, but if we're around them, we don't have to react, okay? We don't have to acknowledge what they're saying. And I said, they'll make a mistake if they, they decide they want to get in the conversation with me about it. Because then they're going to get both barrels. I said, that's how simple it's going to be. But I will I make an attempt not to pull the, the, the triggers. But if they, they barrage me with it, I'm going to let them know it's over. You want to keep going, we can do this here in private. All right? Let's not do it in public. All right? Because now we're going to go over the issues, and I'm going to let you know, my family, you're not going to alter us. We have accepted what we're doing in life. And if you don't want to be part of that, that's your choice. It's your decision not to be involved with your sister or your nephews and nieces and your great nephews and nieces. You're making that decision. You want to reap the repercussions of your actions, that's up to you. But we're not doing that. We're not going to cut off. If you're ready, just like an addict, they don't want to stay here, we're ready when they come home. Let them go. Don't hold on to them. Don't say something that would send them back out there. And total abstinence, I'm sorry, is not something that we can alter. <coughs> we cannot alter that. And if we talk about being totally absent, many mood changes, some minor chemicals, it's our way of life. We're not going to alter our way of life, and that's, that's not saying something that would chase someone back out there. What's taking them back out is addiction and fighting for the right to use. That's what takes them out there. We can explain that to them. We can give them a book. We don't even have to explain it. Give them the book and tell them, do me a favor, read the book. And if you can find anywhere in that book that it justifies rationalizing doing drugs, 
tell me about it. I'd like to see it because I don't believe it's there. But if you can educate me on that, please do. We're not going to argue about it. This is our way of life. But show me where the loopholes are in the book. I know one place you're going to go to. I know exactly where they're going to go to. And then I'm going to explain to them what that part's about. It's about educating your doctor. It's talking about basically going in for operations and extreme physical pain that you need to deal with issues. You educate your doctor. You look for alternative methods. Okay? You talk with your sponsor. You pray with it. And you go in and it tells you to stay in the hospital a couple of extra days and detox before you leave. That's the only place that's in the basic text. And it's nowhere in the gray book. Nowhere in the gray book. So, please find it and let me know. When you're ready, we're here. We don't force our way of life on you. You want this way of life, we're here to get you there. You want the restoration to sanity. You want the obsession and compulsion to lift it. We can help you with that. It even shares that in the book, where that obsession and compulsion can be removed. It's been removed in my life. I'm not... Since a year and a half clean, I've not had an obsession or compulsion to want to use. So it's getting longer and longer away. All right, I will be celebrating 44 years on November the 16th. So it's getting longer and longer away. Since a year and a half, it's getting closer to 42 and a half years without, without an obsession or compulsion to want to use. It actually is because it happened before. It happened on um, Labor Day weekend. And I went to, to Miami Beach, Florida. I went there to that world convention, never had an obsession or compulsion one of you since. It's been removed. I've been healed in that area. A daily reprieve, though. It's a daily reprieve that's been removed. Are you, if that's the, what you want out of life, it can happen. It's a miracle here. It does happen for us. You gotta do work to get there, though. You gotta become the person you're supposed to be Okay, the person that you can go to bed with at night and accept when you go to sleep that you are who you are. You can face the man in the mirror, the woman in the mirror, and you won't question it no more. You're not gonna be caught up with control. You're not gonna be caught up with obsession. You're not gonna be caught up with depression any longer. That stuff leaves with recovery. I want to thank you for allowing me to participate in your life and be involved with your life. And I'm looking forward to many of years to being involved with you. Let us help you. Let us be here for you. And make sure everyone gets with him, okay? Thank you for allowing me to share tonight. Thank you. Thank you.